Hey, Bobby, would help if you started on the first page. <laughs> Mix up a bit. Yeah, go start page three. One of these days I'm going to do that. Like, that, that will happen, I'm sure. Like, match number four. Wait, wait, that's not right. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Alec Pridgen. Uh, oh, excuse me, Alec Pridgen has just been attacked by Bam Bam Bigelow, so I guess I'm hosting with Bam Bam Bigelow now. Oh, oh, wait, no, Alec's come back with a super kick. So, hi, Al. Hey, all right, I got better. Okay, <laughs> all right. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing good. How's it going tonight? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. All right. Well, we have just finished our fourth series. Oh, yeah. Spring Stampede. That's kind of oddly appropriate. It's the, our fourth series, and it's a series that took place entirely in the fourth month. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was a pretty fascinating series to cover, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, filled with fun sets, weird time gaps, and a full set of good-to-great shows. As long as you pretend, as I prefer to, that Spring Stampede 2000 does not exist. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. Tonight, we are going to take a look back over Spring Stampede, play some guessing games, and hand out some awards. I hope that you'll have fun listening and play along. Spring Stampede ran from 1994 to 2000, covering a total of five shows. Thanks to a two-year gap between the first and the second. I was going to say, yeah, people think your math is terrible right now. (laughs) Yes. So, we're going to go through some Spring Stampede stats here on the pay-per-view buys and attendance figures and such. So, Al, what do you think the number one Spring Stampede is in terms of pay-per-view buys? Uh, Probably 98, I would think, because that's post-Starcade 97. I can see maybe 97 itself being top. I think 98... I think that holds strongest. Okay. So, top three Spring Stampedes in terms of pay-per-view buys. In third place, Spring Stampede 1997, with 145,000. They were on the ascent, but they weren't up there. Yeah, they were just they're just starting this thing set up, so it's understandable. Yeah. In second, Spring Stampede 1999, with 220,000. Oh, okay. They hadn't really started their downturn yet. Yeah, quite. And you were right. In first place is Spring Stampede 1998 with 250,000. Well, there you go. And the bottom two. Uh, in second place, we had Spring Stampede 1994 with 120,000. And in first place, <laughs> <laughs> we have Spring Stampede 2000 with 100,000. Wow. It is the last WCW pay-per-view to even reach that. Oof. The series took place across five different arenas, but only four different states. One state, Illinois, got two shows, but in two different arenas. It's kind of weird. I think they just go to the same place again. Yeah, I guess it's just as a matter of scheduling, probably. Or yeah, maybe. Maybe one didn't work out for them as well as they planned. Maybe they were hoping for a bigger audience one time than the one could hold. Who knows? Sure. The top three spring stampedes in terms of attendance. So what do you think number one is? 
I'm thinking still 98, probably. That seems like, as far as these shows go, is the hottest, I would think. Okay. Well, in third place, we have 1994 with 12,200. In second place, we have 2000 with 12,556. Now, as you'll recall, I believe uh, we're, we're just looking at the actual raw attendance numbers, yeah. but as I think I'm right on saying 2000 was the show that was in the arena that could hold like more than double that. Yes, it was a very big arena. Yeah. yeah. And number one is actually Spring Stampede 1999, oh. which had 17,690. That might be a t- uh, stadium thing, maybe. Yeah, I think it's really more an issue of stadium size for these. Gotcha. Bottom two. Second place is Spring Stampede 1997 with 8,356. And first place, actually the the lowest one, is 1998. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) With 7,426. Like you said, though, I think that's more a factor of arena size than a drawing an audience at that point. The shows varied quite a bit in terms of the number of matches, from a perfectly acceptable eight matches to an entirely unacceptable 14. The top three spring stampedes in terms of the number of matches. So do you do you remember which one? You obviously remember which one had 14, right? Yeah, the terrible one we just covered. Yes, yes. yes. What do you think was highest after the 14? Ooh, um, I want to say 99. Well, in third place, we had Spring Stampede 1999. Oh, okay. With nine matches. In second place, with 10 matches, is Spring Stampede 1998. Oh, okay. And in first place, of course, with 14 matches, many of which also sucked, Yes, is Spring Stampede 2000. <laughs> if you want to call the man-cow-Jimmy Hart thing a match. I, I think we have to. It had an opening bell, an ending bell, referee, whole shebang. It was, yeah, it it was it, terrible, but it was a match. Yeah. <laughs> it technically was a match, yes. Yes. <laughs> We've spent the last several months going through the Spring Stampede show by show and talking about each individual show's traits. But now, it's time for us to look at the series as a whole. What is Spring Stampede as a series? What traits or themes stand out? Is there a unified identity to the series? Is there something that unites it as a whole? Al, what are your thoughts? So I had a few things that kind of work as themes. So I don't think it's really a unifying theme. A few things that kind of flow throughout the shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is the idea of chaos versus order. Okay. The very first show, you had these real chaotic matches. The idea is sort of letting people go. So you have that Chicago street fight. You have a bunk house yeah. match. Yeah. And ma- other matches they just couldn't quite control, like, say, Vader versus Boss Man. And yes, I'm going to say Boss Man, though it's the boss, because he was clearly <laughs> the boss man. That's not an accident. But then going further, once we jump to 97, skipping past all the other stuff, we get to the NBO trying to take over. So again, it's the chaos that the NBO creates by their existence. The WCW, as they ask to be called, fighting to sort of regain control and gain order everything. Even besides that, you also have strife as in the NBO in state 98, especially. Yep. The whole thing where Randy Savage can't be controlled even when he's not involved in the video, you really can't control Brady Savage's guest referee. He kind of does what he feels like. Yeah, 99, yeah. 99, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And that, yeah, 98 is definitely about Hogan trying to control him while he's trying to win the world title and not really doing a good job at it. It being effectively the start of the whole uh, Wolfpack versus Hollywood oh, yeah, angle yeah. as well that, yeah, it's a total breakdown of order. Right. Or of the new world order. <laughs> yes. You go by and that, but of course, the bat match, which has the turn of Hogan, a company against Nash as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, another general one we have is, of course, as we probably talked about a couple of times throughout the show, is the rise of DDP. Yep. Because, of course, we have him in the opening match to get Johnny B. Bad in 1994. Deb had a couple of years when he sort of it is growing pain, skipping past that. You have him getting his sort of, at that point, career-defining match, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Him and Randy Savage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Proving he can beat a guy who's, at this point, has won like four world titles. He's a big name, and he's important in the NWO. You dump from that to him being near the top, him being as U.S. champion. Then, of course, 99, we have the payoff to everything, which is, of course, him finally winning the world title. Right. And in 2000, we have him a year later as a very established guy who, I think at that point, had won the title twice, I believe. Yeah, twice. So he's now a two-time world champion, fully established. And the whole idea of the show is, going back to the Chaos of the Order thing, Russo and his group are trying to dethrone him, essentially. Even though he's not actually champion, they're trying to bump him out of position yeah. and put Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, there. It kind of calls back a little bit to the theme that we have in Slamboree of the war over tradition. Yeah, That yeah. we kept saying, you know, each year demonstrates that the ones who were challenging the old traditions have now become the tradition that is being challenged. Mm-hmm, yeah. Exactly, yeah. The other thing I have is kind of a, it's a lesser theme, almost maybe more of a weird coincidence. Two out of the five shows have Scott Diner winning a vacant WCW US championship. <laughs> yes. It's kind of weird how that works. In, in both cases, in the final match of a tournament. Correct, well. yes. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, 99, Scott Hall has the title taken off of him, and he wins over Booker T. And then 2000, everyone had the title taken away from them. Weirdly enough, his partner, Jeff Jarrett, has the title taken away. Yeah. But he was, he traded up that night, so he worked out. But yeah, it's just funny that two shows in a row like that have Scott Steiner, as part of the story of finally getting his due, quote-unquote, because as part of the new blood. And he's exactly where he was the same year before. Yeah, exactly. Not quite an elevation. <laughs> That's what I got. Well, I think you've touched on some of the things that I would comment on as well. All right. For me, there's three themes, and I would call them fun, opportunity, and preludes. Okay. So for fun, well, that one's fairly direct and obvious, I think. It's more about the feel of the shows. WCW just seems to have more fun with this series than with most. Yeah. They set a playful atmosphere for the graphics and the sets. They got more creative with their presentation, and that showed through in the matches the commentary, and the general mood of most of the shows. Everyone for most of the series is just having a good time. Even when the storylines are serious and the stakes are high, you never actually feel tense watching the series because DDP and Raven are brawling on a stagecoach or Heenan is cracking jokes about frequent flyer miles or (laughs) Tony is snarking about Mysterio's pockets. Yeah. And by the way, on most of the shows, you can look in the background and see this hilarious and awesome Old West set of some level or another that just brightens your day. Yeah. Even the awful 2000 show has good moments of levity with things like Luger just having a good time mocking Bagwell's dance mm-hmm. or cracking up at Flair's over-the-top promo. Yeah. I very nearly gave Luger MVP on that show, honestly, for making me laugh repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, they have stuff that's designed to be fun, but doesn't quite work, like, say, the hardcore match. Right, yes. 
whether they succeed or not, they are going for it. They are going for fun overall, yeah. yeah. But yeah, 2000 aside, 94, 97, 98, and 99 are all just playful, creative shows where WCW seemed to let themselves be more free with design and concepts than they normally were. And it set the tone for each show and inspired everyone on it. Yeah, I think the only series that's really comparable as far as using the crazy sets and really embracing the theme is probably Halloween Havoc. Yeah, that's the other one that came to my mind as well. It's just like where they really just play around with the look and feel of the show so much. Like they have ones where they're in costume. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and then the giant pumpkin with the like demon over it. I love the giant show. Yeah, that's... Yeah, so that that's the other series, I think, where they really play around a lot. Mm-hmm, for sure, yeah. But then we get to what I feel are the two main themes of the series, and I'll start with Opportunity. Okay. So Opportunity is represented both in and out of character. We have Diamond Dallas Page as the most notable one, as you've mentioned. Yeah. He represents it for both angles. He got his first shot at a main event on a 1997 show, and a chance to prove himself in combat against a legend in the form of Randy Savage— but that's not just an in-character theme for DDP. Out of character, he was also getting the chance to prove himself as well, to show that he could put on a great main event, and that he was worthy of that level of performance. Right. And then on 99, he got another chance, as you pointed out, the opportunity to be world champion for the first time, to have the company resting on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Again, both in and out of character. It's a chance for the character, DDP, to earn the highest possible achievement, but it's also a chance for the man, DDP, to be at the top of the company, to show he can be the focal point. Mm -hmm. But it's not just DDP. Others have opportunity-focused stories, too. For instance, on 1997, we have Prince Iakea, who has a tale about proving himself. Even though he's champion already, he has to prove that he deserves to be. Yeah. And then the four-way match on 1997 is about opportunity, too. Who will get the chance to face Hollywood Hogan on a future show? Mm Mm-hmm who's going to have the fate of WCW riding on their shoulders. Yeah. And then, heck, there's 2000, the purest possible expression of opportunity for the whole series. Mm -hmm. The entire show is about it. The new blood is out to seize opportunities that they believe have been withheld from them. Mm -hmm. Chances at titles that they believe others have kept from them, even when some of them have actually won that title before, as you just pointed out. Yeah, right. When opportunities haven't come, they've decided to seize them by force, and seize them they do, with most of the titles that night won by the New Blood, including, most notably, first-time world champion Jeff Jarrett. Yes. Who is in the position of proving himself that DDP was a year prior against DDP himself. Yeah. So that's opportunities. So what about preludes? Well, the series also features the setup, or the initial moments, of a large number of important angles. While it does close out some storylines, it starts, or at least hints at, more stories than it concludes. Mm -hmm. Few things really end on Spring Stampede, but quite a lot are set up. Mm -hmm. In 1994, we get loads of references to the pending arrival of Hulk Hogan, as the company sets the table for his arrival. While it is indeed closing out a number of feuds, it's always in a forward-looking sense. There's a sense of expectation about the show, as it always looks forward to what's coming soon. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1997, again, we're deciding who's going to face Hogan for the world title, kicking off the story of his next challenger, and setting up the champions of WCW who will battle the NWO for the next several months in the absence of their hero Sting. Mm -hmm. 1997 kicks off Luger and DDP's primacy as challengers, and also sets up Flair's actions to oppose the NWO, kicking off the angle that's going to lead to Green, Piper, and Flair facing the NWO next show. Yep. 
1998, we see the beginning of the rift in the NWO, as you discussed, that's going to create the Hollywood and Wolfpack factions, Mm. the dramatic split in the NWO that defines most of the shows for the remainder of the year. We see the cause of the rift, the drawing of the battle lines, the start of the alignment of the NWO members in the two factions, and we also see hints at the swiftly coming rise of Goldberg, soon to be United States champ, with Diamond Dallas Page and Raven virtually fighting more for the right to face him than for the U.S. title. Yeah, that's true. In 1999, we get Diamond Dallas Page showing the signs of the heel turn that he's going to have shortly as he starts his run with the world title, demonstrating a viciousness in the title match that he had not thus far shown. We also get what I believe is the first appearance of Scotty Riggs in his new gimmick, kicking off a new story for him. Not all first steps lead to long journeys. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) And what I also believe is the first appearance of Blitzkrieg on pay-per-view, though I could be wrong on that. I believe it's for pay-per-view appearance, correct. And then, of course, again, 2000, the whole company is getting a new start. A rebirth of sorts, rising like a phoenix from its ashes, albeit with sputtering flames and a broken wing. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's somewhat ironic that the worst show in the series so well demonstrates the series theme to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 2000 sets up an entire slate of new champions sets up a new status quo, and defines the conditions that will affect the company-wide angles for months to come. Yeah, introducing or reintroducing people. Mm -hmm. Mike Awesome, Shane Douglas, uh, Chris Candido's first appearance. Right, yeah. Uh, Tammy Sitch as well. Yes. Unexpectedly, apparently. Yes. (laughs) From here on, we're going to get storylines between the New Blood and the Millionaires Club, between Sting and Vampiro, between the Flair family and Russo. I didn't say all the preludes were for good things. Mm, Yeah. So you have opportunity and preludes, but really they combine, I think, as beginnings. Mm -hmm. Spring Stampede is the launch of a great many things. DDP's main event level career, his world champion identity, the next Hogan challenger, the NWO split, the New Blood versus Millionaires Club angle. They're all about beginnings, all about people getting the chance to do something new and different, or in some cases being forced into that. Beginnings is a very appropriate theme for spring. Yeah, that's true. So in fact, in many ways, I think spring is the theme. The series title is not just a statement of time, but also of purpose. The shows are in and of spring. The time of beginnings, of opportunity, of rebirth, of growth. So appropriately, on the various spring stampedes, storylines, performers, and even the company itself begin new things, grow, and are changed and reborn if in some cases for very brief times. Yes. (laughs) We've had a look at the Spring Stampede stats, but now we're going to take a look at some interesting data that I've gathered on the performers who appeared on the shows. So, Al, time to see your memory of the series here. All right, see how much I blocked out. (laughs) Mostly the last show, probably. All right, first up. Who do you think appeared as a competitor in the most matches? Any guesses? Ding's got to be an easy pick for that, because he's on most of the show. Nicky misses 97, obviously, but... Yeah, he's busy hanging out in the rafters at that point. Right. But he also has multiple matches on 2000. He has the three matches on that show. Mm -hmm. So that kind of balanced that a little bit. Flair's a pretty good constant throughout. He's not on 97 because he comes back for the Slamboree. 
Peter Emerson averaged one match per show, but DDP is on all the shows. Mm-hmm. He's probably the most consistent performer as far as being on every show, I believe. Yeah, DDP is on every show. Yeah. So that's five then. Do you think that Sting rises to more than five? I feel like he at least ties it. Because if he's on if he's on 94, 98, 99, and then he has his 2,000 matches, actually, he might pull ahead if I did the math on that right without writing it down. All right. Well, up in third place, with four matches each, we have Booker T, Lex Luger, and Ric Flair. In second place, with five each, we have Diamond Dallas Page mm-hmm. and Scott Steiner. Oh, yeah, that's true. Also, several tournament appearances that make up for not being on a show or two. That's true. And in first place, you were right. With six matches, this is Sting. There you go. But that's matches overall. So, who was a competitor in the most main events? And I'm only counting actual main events here, the final aired match of the show, regardless of what anyone says on the show. <laughs> I don't think we actually had any declared main events. No, I don't events think so. this time, but yeah. Just to be clear. Gotcha. I feel like it's got to be DDP because he's main eventing 97, 99, and 2000. He's not main eventing 98. He's like semi main eventing that, I believe. Mm-hmm. All right. In third place. With one main event each, we have Hulk Hogan, Jeff Jarrett, and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. It's weird Hogan's only at the one, but yeah. It is. It is surprising, isn't it? Yeah. That always shocks me when he's not higher on the list for main events when we're covering this period. Yeah. I think it shows that he can't be bothered to appear on. Yeah, what it is. true. But even Starcades, he didn't actually have that many main events on, as I recall. Mm, yeah. They just get so much notoriety, they kind of yeah. think of them as being everyone, yeah. In second place, with two main events each, we have Ric Flair, Randy Savage, and Sting. And in first place, with three main events, is indeed Diamond Dallas Page, nice. proving that this is his series. Mm-hmm. A show isn't just about competitors, though. There's all sorts of other roles to fill. So next up, the commentary team. The most matches called by commentator. And actually, on this one, since number one is probably fairly obvious, I'm going to ask you to try and do the top three. (laughs) All right. Yeah, Shivani is obviously number one because he's on all the shows. Mm -hmm. You want to say Madden and Hudson because they call all of all the way too many matches in 2000, but they don't call any other matches. So that, I almost kind of red herring there because you go to that show Mm -hmm. and try to trick you. It's got to be Shivani and Heenan because Heenan's existed except the 2000. It's one of the major problems with that show. Not the only major problem, as we discussed <laughs> at length, but definitely a major problem. Right. Replacing Madden with him is at least make a show a point better. Might even be Tanae, actually, just because the shows he's on, they have more matches. All right. So you're saying three Tanae, two Heenan, one Shivani? Yeah. All right. Well, in number three, with 20 matches called, is Iron Mike Tanae. Oh, all right. In second place... With 35 matches called is Bobby the Brain Heenan. All right. And in first place, obviously, (laughs) with 49 matches called is Tony Schiavone. He calls every single match on the series. Yes. 
It's always dark at the Rosoff because he was one show. He's just not on because he hadn't come in yet. Yeah, right? when you hit the yeah, yeah. 80s to 90s transition, there's some shows where it's like JR in the lead or Bob yeah. Cottle if you're particularly early or things like that. Right. So exactly. he'll probably keep the lead on most series, but every now and then we, we throw a loophole in there. When does that go have the backlog? Might yeah, yeah, yeah. So, managers. What is your guess for who managed people in the most matches? I'm always bad with the manager questions. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think about that as much unless they really interfere a lot. I can't remember which Jimmy Hart's involved managing. Yeah, to the, the obvious ones. Tammy counts for obviously just the one match. Right. Yeah. They're coming at the end still counts there, yeah. And I actually, I may have counted her for that one as interference instead of as a manager at mm. that time. I'm not absolutely sure. Because she didn't really come out with them. She appears at the yeah, end. Yeah, she, she kind of jumps in at the end. So Whereas Daphne is definitely a manager for that because yeah. she's the thing and still interferes. In the yes, most there's an ungodly time. number of people that are counted as managers for that match, <laughs> I believe. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other people as managers uh, per se. Yeah, I'm not sure. All right. I will let you know the answer surprised me on this one because I didn't remember the person appearing as often as they did. Okay. Oh, by the way, I'm starting with second because third place was a 27-way tie, ah. and I am not reading that many people's names off. It's just one match each, basically? Yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. Fair enough. So in second, a three-way tie with two appearances as a manager each. We have Ted DiBiase. Oh, right, yeah. Kimberly Page. Oh, yeah. And Colonel Robert Parker. Right, right. With Austin, I forgot that one. Yep. And then in first place, with three appearances, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah? She appears with Savage twice, and then she accompanies Kevin Nash alongside Lex Luger for his match against Goldberg. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't remember that last one. I was like, wait, how'd she get in the lead? And then remembered, oh, right, she's not just with Savage on it. All right. Referees. Who refereed the most matches? Now, this is counting every referee appearance, every time they came out to do referee duties for a match, whether it's being the initial assigned ref, replacing the actual referee after a ref bump, or coming out to rectify a referee's call. But I will let you know, I did not count appearances where they just kind of showed up but didn't actually do anything referee-ish. Oh, okay. So, like, when they come out to unlock the cuffs on uh, Nightheart after that match, they don't count as referees. Right, right, yeah. Or if they try to just like wake up the one ref, but not actually, but don't actually start refing. That's not, yeah, that's not a referee appearance. Okay. So who do you think refereed the most matches? I know Dickinson's in a lot. He'd be an easy one. Curtis is definitely Mark Curtis is definitely around a lot for sure. And uh, probably Blaking now on the evil evil ref. Although he's not really really evil on this show series at all because of the timeline. Do you mean Nick Patrick, or do you mean... I mean Nick, Nick Patrick. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he's never really there. Other than the what, the one match, he's only there. He has 97 show where he transitions from being evil to good, at right. least temporarily. Right, right, yeah. But yeah he's, he's an evil ref for the one match. Yeah. yeah. We don't have like a bunch of shows where he's the go-to evil ref. Right. Yeah, I'd probably say Dickinson or Mark Curtis. He's, he's there a lot, I know. Okay. In third place, with six appearances, we have Billy Silverman. Ah, right, yeah. In second place, we have a three-way tie with eight appearances each. And that's actually Mickey J. 
Oh, right, yeah. Booker T's favorite referee. Mm-hmm. Charles Robinson and Randy Anderson. Oh, okay. And then in first place, despite not being evil ref this time for most of the series, Nick Patrick still takes it with 11 appearances. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think he's, even before they do the evil ref star, he's generally seen as, like, the head referee. He's kind of the head ref. Yeah, once he comes into the company, I think, like, inside of a year or two, he's, like, top ref. The fact that his dad is also producer on the show, it's clearly coincidental, I'm sure, (laughs) to the whole process. No disrespect to Nick Patrick, he is a good ref. He said, either make me head referee or I'll wear a mask like my dad does, and (laughs) it'll look hilarious, so they won't take your matches seriously. (laughs) Well, he could probably wear the same mask his dad wears. It'd probably actually fit him correctly. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's such a nice, snug fit. (laughs) Now, uh, just to note, if you only count initial referee appearances, Mm -hmm. Nick Patrick loses one appearance as replacement ref, but remains in first place with 10. Randy Anderson loses a consulting appearance to hit third place with seven. And Silverman loses a replacement appearance, so he retains five initial showings for fourth place alongside Mark Curtis. Gotcha. Yeah, because we is, is it Mickey J that gets, uh, poor Mickey J gets speared by Goldberg, I believe? I believe so, yeah. That spear is a little low, too. <laughs> a little bit. We've talked about the people with a ton of appearances, but what about the people with the fewest? It's probably no surprise since this is a pretty short series, but there are 78 people who only show up for a single match in any capacity on Spring Stampede. Mm-hmm. That's probably aided somewhat by that time gap between the first and second shows as well right. that you have kind of an era transition happen. For sure. So a lot of people don't come back after 94. Yeah. Or there, yeah, things happen like Steamboat retires and stuff like that. Yeah. Of the 78, two of them took home an MVP award for their single appearance. That's Chavo Guerrero Jr. and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. That's true, yeah. The latter of whom got it from both of us on his sole appearance. Mm-hmm. It's quite good. Three actually even took home Match of the Night honors as competitors for their single appearance. Chavo Guerrero Jr., Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and Ray Trailer as the boss. Oh, right, yeah. It's worth noting that Trailer's opponent, Vader, was also only on one show, but he showed up to interfere in Sting's match too, so he's not counted among the 78. Right. This is people who literally only appeared in one match. Right. Some other interesting people on the list include The Great Muda, mm-hmm. Steve Austin, Cactus Jack, yeah. Roddy Piper, Chris Jericho, and the British Bulldog, who also only had a single appearance in our previous series, Slamboree. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Last but not least, let's look at who's taken home the coveted Let's Go to the Ring Match of the Night and MVP awards. So first up, we're going to check for each host who took home the most MVP awards. Now, unusually, I will let you know, neither of us actually gave our MVP to the same person twice this time. Really? Not not even one time. Wow. So I'm wondering, how much of each of our list can you guess? Can you name all five for each of us? Oh, okay. So, first for you. I know I gave it to Sting the one year, for sure. That's one. I must have given DDP one for sure. Probably 97, maybe? Actually, no. Okay, interesting. Lodic would tell you I gave it to Vader, because I really did enjoy his match on that show, but I don't know if I gave it to him or not. I don't believe, nope, uh, he is not on the list. Yeah, because it would be only with 94. 
Oh, I think I'd remember the things I picked <laughs> yeah, more than I do what I really... Did I give him to Steamboat? Yes. Yep, so you got Sting and Steamboat. Can you think the other three? I know in my heart I gave Wendell Parka, even if I didn't officially give <laughs> Wendell Parka. There's an honorary one in there for him somewhere, yeah, definitely, but... <laughs> Any show he appears on, even if it's just in the ring with Sting celebrating, he, he has a chance of making it. Well, Sting is bizarrely saying Mamacita. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had to rib his deer, didn't I, when... Yep, he's on there. I know Eddie's usually a good pick, but he hasn't appeared too much match capacity. Right. That's the thing. Give you two more guesses. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure I could make one more guesses. Um, did I already say Booker T? I know you... you did not say Booker T yet, but that's one. Okay, there we go. I would give it to Benoit, maybe? I always feel weird giving him stuff, you know, all things said. Yeah. No, you did not give one to Benoit. Our last one that you, you got, you got Ricky Steamboat, right. Booker T, Ray Mysterio Jr., Sting. The last one was Randy Savage. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I'll give you five guesses exactly for mine. Okay. DDP's obviously in there somewhere. I think you gave it to you gave it to Steamboat as well, didn't you say that? Yes. Okay. Two. Oh, I know. Okay, I know one. You went to Giant, I believe, for his Three. promo. Yeah. You're doing better with mine than with your. It's interesting. <laughs> two left. Hmm. Okay. Oh, I think you gave it to Booker T on 2000. Yep. Four for four. Yeah. Do you know what show I'm missing? They might be able to figure it out that way. I believe it's 98. Did you give it a child for, for that match? Can I go? Like, Guerrero, yep. There you go. You got five for five on mine. <laughs> and we're completely unclear on yours. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm paying attention when you gave yours out. You know, I, 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 I'm glad, honestly, that you pay so much attention to me, Al, mm-hmm. and apparently allow my opinions to overwhelm your own. <laughs> I think they added you giving me all the name possibilities as well. Yeah. By that point, as well, to be fair. All right. So, who do you think out of all those? got the most MVPs overall. There were a couple names in there, if you recall, that got picked once by each of us. Right. Yeah, we both gave it to Steamboat, that one show. Yep. We both gave it to GP on different shows. Nope. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right, you didn't. I did. You did. Well, oh, yeah. It's weird I didn't. Oh, because I gave it to Savage in the other match. Yeah. I think they'd be the easiest one because we just went over it, but uh, I think Booker T, well, Booker T got picked by both of us, so I yeah. he in there. Those are the two, actually. Yep. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yep. Okay. We got two people that got picked twice. But yeah. So first off, second with one choice each, we have the Giant, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Rey Mysterio Jr., DDP, Randy Savage, and Sting. And then in first place, getting picked twice each, we have Booker T, who got picked by each of us, but on two different shows, mm-hmm. and Ricky Steamboat, who got picked by both of us on the same show. Take me back to the very, the very first show that we both picked Steamboat, I believe. Like the I very, think so. Very yeah, show, and then yeah. John, I think, picked his match, and or no, I think, I think you and I picked Steamboat's match for match of the night, and then picked someone else for MVP, and John picked Steamboat for MVP, but picked the Piper and Valentine match. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Speaking of match of the night, match of the night participations, and we are only looking at competitors. So, who do you think was your number one match of the night choice, Al? Only looking for one name this time. I'm trying to think if I picked two different DDP matches for Match of the Night. I know I picked one, obviously. I feel pretty sure I picked one. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I, I didn't pick 2000. Hmm. 
Not sure. All right. For you, with two awards, was Booker T. Oh, okay. I think you picked his match with Benoit, and then his match with Sting on 2000. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. All right. For me, who do you think competed in my match of the night? Choices the most. And again, it's one person that got two picks. I feel like they have DDP. That's correct. Two awards, DDP for me. At 99, 2000? Uh, I believe it was... I feel like I chose his match with Raven in 98. Okay, because I, I picked him 2000. Or no, that might have been the Chavo one. Hmm. Or did I pick... Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I, I know I picked his match in 2000, but I can't remember if it was 97's or 98's match. See, the reason I asked the question is that I don't have a great memory. So right, right. <laughs> I test you, not you test me, dang it. <laughs> Given all that, who do you think competed in the most matches of the night? So looking for one name that got a total of three votes. Okay, Booker T or DDP, I feel like. I'm trying to put one I'm going to go with. I'd take a Booker T, maybe. Okay. In third place, with one award each, we have a nine-way tie. Chris Benoit, Ric Flair, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Jeff Jarrett, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, Ray Trailer, Ultimo Dragon, and Vader. In second place, we have a four-way tie with two votes each. Randy Savage, Billy Kidman, Rey Mysterio Jr., and Booker T. And in first place, with one choice from you and two choices from me for a total of three, Diamond Dallas Page. There you go. Very appropriate. Yeah. All right. Ready to update our overall stats? Okay. So going even further back into the past, when we've already established that you and I can't remember crap from this show. Right, yeah. <laughs> All right. So these are stats covering every wrestling show that we've covered. So this includes Collision in Korea, but does not include Ready to Rumble. Oh, okay. N- nothing about that is wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> even though it does look like it is. <laughs> So, appearances as a match competitor overall. Got a guess? Who's number one? Wow. Uh, I know DDP definitely moved up from the last couple of series. I don't know if that'd be number one, but he definitely moved up in the world. Flair's held pretty strong, too, for sure. Though he didn't have as good a showing in this series, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. One way or another. Is it Sting's Adele? Sting was up there pretty high. I mm-hmm. All right. Third place, with 26 match competitor appearances, is Lex Luger. Ah, right. In second place, with 31, Ric Flair. Right. And in first place, with 34 appearances so far as a match competitor, this is Sting. All right. The standings on there have not actually changed since the last time we did this, but it is worth noting that Scott Steiner and Rick Steiner are now on Luger's tail with 23 and 22 appearances, respectively. Okay. So a little bit more from them, and they might take third. Okay, sounds good. But that's overall match appearances. So what about main events? Who do you think has had the most main events? It's got to be Sting or Flair. I think Sting probably overall, I'd say. Okay. In third place, with six, we have Big Van Vader. All right. In second place, with 13, Sting. Oh, okay. And in first place, still holding strong with 18, is Ric Flair. He picked up just the one this series, but still, he had a pretty good lead. Yeah. 
people are creeping up on him, but he has such a commanding lead from the Starcade series. Right, right. That it's hard to catch up to him. At a certain point, you'd think it's going to end up being Hogan, but as we discussed, he's maybe not maybe been as much as we think he is. He's just so obvious a figure that you think that he's yeah. at the top of the card more often than he actually is, yeah. These are, again, the same as the last time that we took a look, but there's a notable change in fourth place, as DDP is now tied with Hulk Hogan at five main events each. This series really rocketed DDP up the list, giving him another three. I'd say, yeah. yeah. It only gave Hogan one more. Right. All right, commentators. So first place is pretty obvious. So again, I'm going to see, can you guess, one, two, and three. I feel like it holds pretty steady. Probably Shivani is obviously number one. Mm-hmm. I think Keenan is still probably number two. Hmm, I feel like just because he's done a lot early, in, especially in series, probably... Probably Dusty, then. I oh, know, you totally hope it's Dusty. Okay. In third place, with 104 matches, JR. Oh, right. He didn't get any new matches this series, so he dropped to third. Got it. was second last time, actually. In second place, with 137 matches, he overtook JR this time, Bobby the Brain Heenan. All right. And in first place, obviously, with 231 matches is Tony Schiavone. That's 94 more matches than his closest competitor. (laughs) (laughs) Referees. Here we are again, Al. Yeah, right? My favorite category. So looking at all referee appearances, so that's every time they appear doing referee duties, like I discussed last time, not just if they were the initial assigned one. Who do you think is in first place? I feel like it's still going to be Patrick, because he's pretty consistent across the board. All right. In third place, this one surprised me with 24 uh, referee appearances, is Mike Atkins. Ah. Surprisingly, he was not overtaken despite not having any appearances in this latest series. That's the uh, old-timey saloon ref. Yes, old-timey saloon ref. That's, just, yeah. I, I, that's how I know him. I'm gonna, <laughs> yes. Let's make sure I get the right person. Okay. In second place, quite a bit higher up with 58 appearances, is Randy Anderson. And in first place, way ahead with 77, Nick Patrick. Yeah. The positions do not change at all if we only use initial ref appearances, by the way. Mm. Atkins stays the same at 24. He has never been anything but the initial signed ref on any of the things we've covered so far. Anderson loses two appearances and stays in second at 56. And Patrick loses three appearances but retains first place easily at 74. MVP choices again. So first up, we're going to go by host, Al who do you think you have chosen the most for MVP across every show that we've watched? I feel like it's got to be Sting, because he's a good, solid pick on so many shows. For me. All right. So with seven choices, it is Sting. All right. And me? Ooh. Uh, I feel like it's got to be DDP, or Flair can definitely sneak in there as well. And Flair, more from the back catalog from this series, because he didn't... He has showings in these series, but not quite the same level. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to go with Flair. Okay. You are half right. Oh, okay. Because it's a tie. Oh, okay. With four choices each, I have Ric Flair and Sting. Though, interestingly, neither of them actually got any choices from me on this series. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember John's? (laughs) Um... Not as much, no. Um, 
I know he's the only one that ever picked Glacier. <laughs> yes. That's, that's, I remember that one. I remember that being such a weird choice, but both of us really pretty much agreeing with it for the show he was yeah. choosing it on to. Yeah. Like, yeah, dude in a video package actually is better than 90% of what's going on yeah, on the right? show. All right. With three choices, Dusty Rhodes. Oh, of course. So for all of us together, who do you think got the most MVP awards? Including yours, mine, and John's votes. Probably Sting then, I would say, based on enough. All right. In third place, we have Diamond Dallas Page. He's got six so far. All right. In second place, Rick Flair. He's gotten eight, oh. all from previous series. And in first place, this is Sting with 13 MVP awards, putting him far out in front. Oh, yeah. Wow. All right. Finally, Match of the Night competitors. So again, we'll go by host first. So Al, who do you think you picked most for Match of the Night so far? Hmm. Say probably Flair or Sting. All right. Sting got eight awards from you. All right. So it is Sting. Gotcha. For me? Hmm. I think yours might be Flair. I think you lean a little more towards Flair than I do. All right, you are again half right, <laughs> because Ric Flair is tying with somebody again. With seven awards each, Ric Flair and Diamond Dallas Page. Gotcha. And from John? Ooh, um, I know Piper got a couple of times from him in a, two random, very spaced-out appearances <laughs> in Starcade. Going with Piper, then? Sure. Okay. That is not Piper. It is... The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, oh. jointly with four. That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Once you read it, you're like, oh yeah, but then... Right. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten that too. <laughs> so for all of us together, who got the most Match of the Night competitor appearances? They probably still Sting, I want to think. All right. Third place, we have Ricky the Dragon Steamboat with 12. Makes sense, yeah. And that, that's amazing, actually, considering he's not on that many shows. Right. But almost every time he shows up, he gets one or more of our mm-hmm. Yeah. Votes. Second place, we have Ric Flair with 13. And in first place with 16 is Sting. All right. That's the same group as last time we did this, actually, just adding one match each. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, shall we check in on our old pal Tully Blanchard? Sure. Our surprise winner of the Starcade match of the nights uh, yeah, right. is still pretty high up on the list, though he's dropped down a little from last time. In seventh place, with still uh, his eight choices that we got on the Starcade series, is Tully Blanchard. In sixth place, with nine, is Aaron Anderson. Okay. In fifth place, with ten, is Vader. Naturally. And in fourth place, with eleven, Diamond Dallas Page. There you go. Whose name just keeps coming up right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, we get into certain years and certain times. I really hope we'll get more, get the more dominant appearances of Vader. I think it'll definitely help. Yeah. Him. It'll be interesting to see when we go back to the 80s. I don't think there's any chance of him catching back up to the leaders now. No. But it'll be interesting to see if Blanchard climbs the rankings a lo- again a little when we get back to the late 80s. Yeah, because he had the one match with Sambury, which I don't think anyone picked that. No, it was it was it was solid, but no, it wasn't, wasn't a bad like, match, but just a didn't blow pick. away match like his his previous ones. Kind of just happened and then ended, and you're like, oh, okay, that's yeah. It's like, oh, it was nice to see Tully again. Yeah. 
With all the data out of the way, it's time to give out some series awards. So each show, we've awarded our Match of the Night and MVP, but now we're going to look at things across the entire series. So to start off, we're going to go for our series MVPs. This is three people, in no particular order, who you thought were the MVPs of the entire series. So Al, who are yours? All right, so... First choice is fairly obvious. He is good performances throughout the series and his obvious rise in ranking to the series. DDP makes it on there. Absolutely. At no point do we have a match where DDP shows and they go, oh, that's not very good or oh, that's disappointing. Mm-hmm. Even 99, which he didn't love as much as you did, for instance, I don't think he was bad in it at all. He has yet to take away from a match. I don't know if he ever will necessarily. And even in 94, when he's just figuring out who he is still as a character, he gave a very solid performance on that one. Yeah, he's, he's, not, a, he's not an anchor we've seen in any matches. It's good. Second, the name we've heard many times in the last several minutes, Sting. But actually, for me, in the later runs, like in 2000, he's a real saving grace because, as I said before, so many people get all of the interesting stuff sort of stripped away from them. Hogan loses red and yellow and mm-hmm. saving prayers with vitamins. And he's just terrible A wearing a black vest and uh, getting gunned pointed at him by cops. <laughs> that was so freaky. It is very, yeah. Or Flair doesn't wear his robes anymore. Just comes out dressed like he's going to fight someone on the golf course. Uh, when, when members of the audience are dressed better than Flair. Yeah. That's, that's not good. Yeah. So on that show, especially Thing conveniently already in black and white, so I guess I can't take his colors away from him. Other than maybe when he used to wear the neon scorpion on the jacket. Yeah. Hey, he's lost that, I suppose. But he still kept his uh, Mortal Kombat scorpion logo, so... Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he don't have one show where he wears weird white boots like he has on, 90, on uh, Slamboree. Right. It's just very distracting. I don't know why that is. It just looks so weird to me. Outside of that, there's a lot of people that... They don't necessarily make, like, say, my Ultimate Slam card, but they're really reliable. The guy I found most reliable, putting aside other stuff that happened with him, is Chris Benoit. Mm-hmm. His match performances, even when he makes some questionable choices, like diving headbutt onto a chair on a guy's head at a side, he has really good performances with Lee Malenko, who, if I was picking more than three, Dean Malenko would probably make it in there. Mm-hmm. He's a solid hand through all his appearances. You don't quite get the breakout character moment, per se, like you do on Slamboree, with his more angry form oh, against yeah. Jericho. Arguably the biggest pop of his career. When he amazing, amazing pop, yeah. Yeah. But Benoit's there, and it's really solid. He's one of those guys that's definitely missed 2000, because he famously left the company in mm. January that year. Again, not like him being there, or as like I said before, Madden being replaced by Heenan would have made 2000 a good show. But swapping one guy out, at least one guy in a match with Benoit, quality-wise, would definitely help performances in the show. I feel like we, at the very least, wouldn't have gotten uh, that moment on the show where Tony just starts playing with his paper and not paying attention to what his co-announcers are saying. Yes. If you had Heenan on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heenan would be like, cheer up, Tony. Come on, I can make you laugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because a lot of people, they just kind of barely don't quite make it in. Billy Kidman's an example. He mm-hmm. comes up really well. Remisterio is always really good. There's a lot of people with very, very good appearances on this, and some of them are just, they, they don't appear enough times. Yeah. But there's a ton of great performances on this series. Yeah, yeah I basically had to narrow down my third pick between Booker T or Benoit. 
Okay. I'm back and forth a bunch of time. I think Benoit overall for me. All right. So for mine, in no particular order, Diamond Dallas Page. Sure. Definitely. There is no way that I can do an MVP list for Spring Stampede without DDP. Right. It's basically his series. It shows more than any other series, the rise of DDP from opening match guy to main event worthy performer to world champ and reliable feature at the top of the card. And what makes it best is that he quickly proves himself very worthy of his new position and showcases every single time he shows up what makes him great. Mm -hmm. Page's dedication and drive give us great performances time and time again. Of the five main events on the series, he has three of them. And he entirely deserves every one. Agreed, yeah. Next up, Booker T. Okay. (laughs) Aside from one very notable promo flub on this series. Don't worry, that'll come up later. From which he at least recovered very well. That's true. Booker was just an enormously consistent performer with good or at least solid match performances on 1997, 1998, 1999, and even, surprisingly, 2000. Yeah. And last up for me, Randy Savage. Okay. As the other half of DDP's biggest moment, Savage selflessly gave all he had to help DDP achieve greatness and solidify his position in the main event tier for the rest of WCW's run. Aside from that excellent match, Savage had a good performance on 1998's show against Sting, providing a good dastardly heel for Sting to fight. And though I had some issues with the ending of the 1999 four-way world title match, Savage was still a fun addition to it, and his flexing counts made me giggle. Right. right. He's a great, reliable performer on the series, with one particularly awesome performance that made another wrestler. Yeah, for me, I didn't like 98 as much. I think part of that problem is because we covered that show specifically. You have the DP Raven no DQ match. Oh, right, yeah. Where they fight out to the front and they fight back in there. Follow immediately by Sting and Randy Savage, essentially doing the same thing, but with less. Yeah, I, I fully agree on that. I just still thought that's still a good, solid match between the two of them, and Savage pulls off some very fun stuff right. in it. And to be 100% fair as well, Randy Savage is working legitimately really hurt in this yeah. match. I think if they didn't need him for the story and they could have found a way around it, having him win the child just to lose it to Hogan the next night is yay. It would have helped because I would have given him a chance to recover more than he ever really got to. So it's not his fault that he's working hurt and can't quite do everything as well. But yeah, he's not bad in 98. It just, yeah, it's a little drop down for me. Whereas people like Ben one never really had a drop down. And I think even that statement that you just made that, you know, he's working hurt in 98. Yeah. And he still manages to have a perfectly acceptable match against Sting and pull off some very fun stuff in it. I think that actually makes it even more evident why he should be on there for me. Yeah. That he has two years of honestly really selfless behavior. Mm -hmm. One for just making a new performer and giving everything he has for that. And two for doing what he feels he has to do for the good of the company, working hurt. Not a good idea necessarily, but it is a very selfless thing to do. Yeah. Al, your matches of the series. Three matches in no particular order. All right. Starting with my man, Vader. (laughs) Versus him and the boss man. I did rewatch that citing this the other day. It sold up really well. Vader is really good at being this big destructive force which he does really well against Bossman. But in this match, you see him selling a lot more. Mm-hmm. 
So you really get this idea that boss man really can take him down. He can strike him just the right way and legitimately bust him open as he does twice on the, in the match. And he seems like he legitimately has a chance mm-hmm. against him. So it's both Vader being really strong and having good performance. Never mind the fact that he does the Vader salt, that glorious thing on the series, which is always fun to see. And what's nice about that one, too, is, though I recall feeling like they may be stuck with boss man offense a little bit too long, they nevertheless managed to do it really well where boss gets to look strong against Vader because you're using Vader's reputation, as you pointed out, of being this really tough guy and showing, oh my gosh, boss is tough enough to injure him. Yeah. But they never devalued Vader in the process. No, no. So it's really, that's a tough balance to get. Yeah. That they fail a lot on other shows, like with him versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the one. Oh, yeah, right. But this one, they really do a good job of saying, we're only building up boss here. We're not devaluing Vader. Exactly, yeah. Hardening match, really enjoyable. And again, Vader Salt. I meant to be sure that's probably on yours, is the DDP versus Randy Savage match. Okay. 997. It was really enjoyable to me. They made a good use of the full space they had. They used the area and used the arrangement there. In a way, only DDP, fittingly enough, and Raven did as well and or better in 98 the next year. Mm-hmm. It tells a great story of how DDP is a valiant face. Savage is the actual heel who can take shortcuts or just knows the right time to counter and hit you with the, say, clothesline or a punch to stop you as your valiant comebacks. And again, he takes the pin pinfall and legitimately sells the diamond cutter for a good minute or so. He's out for a while. He is, yeah. yeah which is, I always appreciate when people do that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously, very, as you mentioned, very historically important because it shows that DDP can be a main eventer. The selflessness that not a lot of people at his position necessarily wanted to show for people, either whether because they were given the chance to or were willing to. Mm-hmm. And lastly, I have the Ric Flair Ricky Steamboat match from the very first show. It's a Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. It's really good. Unlike some of the matches, they don't go so long that they repeat a little bit, as enjoyable as their longer matches can be. Sometimes run out of unique things to do sometimes, so they go back to the wall a couple of times, which can work if you're doing it to subvert the audience. Mm-hmm. Having a guy go for a trademark move, but then be countered, sometimes they just do it again and it works both times. And it's kind of just... <laughs> the other thing is when you were talking about the match, when you really watched it, you really got into the nuances of how the fact that Steamboat, well, it never ever in his career turned heel he shows more aggression and sort of more determination and he sort of leans towards the direction they might cross a line to beat flair mm-hmm. but it doesn't do that yeah there's one point in the match i distinctly remember where tony shivani says oh i think steamboat was going for a chair there but he saw bockwinkle and stopped mm-hmm. and it's an indication of how well steamboat was towing the line in his performance that that didn't sound ridiculous to me. Yeah. Where normally you'd hear someone say that you'd expect that to be Heenan saying it yeah, to Tony yeah. because it'd be an obvious blatant lie. Mm-hmm. But in this case, he was doing this wonderful line towing where it's just like, no, he's so frustrated with flair yeah. that he might just cross that line. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a really powerful performance there. Agreed. All right. My three. Okay. I will agree with you. Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat absolutely has to be on there. It is Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. That alone is enough. But it goes beyond that with both, especially Steamboat, evolving their characters mid-match, showing the weight of their shared histories. Each is frustration with the way the other gets out of every predicament. Mm. 
The sheer difficulty of beating or even getting a sustained advantage against an opponent who knows your every move. Add one of the best transitions into a figure four I have ever seen Mm. by Steamboat, actually, as he caught Flair's knee drop and slapped the hold on from there. Mm. Some wonderfully intricate counter sequences. And just the plain fact that 25 minutes in, these two were capable of wrestling just as quickly and precisely as in the opening minutes. And you've got a masterpiece. Agreed. The only slight mark against the match is the complicated, not bad, but complicated, double pin ending. And that's nowhere near enough to overwhelm over a half hour of sheer greatness. Agreed. My second one. Okay. Ultimo Dragon versus Chavo Guerrero Jr. Mm-hmm, that was Spring good. Stampede 1998. Yeah. I found this a brilliant combination of exceptional, fast-paced action and great storyline, involving not just the competitors, but Eddie Guerrero as well. The tremendous ring action combines rapid striking, crisp power moves, crazy high-flying, and intricate mat work and holds. The quality of performance there alone was enough to easily make my top 10. What pushes it above the others, though, is the fact that all of that is intermingled expertly with Eddie and Chavo's storyline, mm-hmm. with Chavo fighting for freedom from his nefarious Uncle Eddie, but unwilling to cheat or dishonor himself to do it, and Eddie hurling abuse at him at every turn, mm-hmm. mocking and berating him and trying to corrupt him. The storyline and match meld very, very well, with just enough interaction between Chavo and Eddie to enhance the story without overshadowing the match itself. It makes the match feel meaningful on a deeper level than many. Yeah. It's not just about victory, it's about what Chavo is willing to do to attain it. And last up, as you guessed, Diamond Dallas Page versus the Macho Man Randy Savage from Spring Stampede 1997. Speaking of meaningful matches, this match carried incredible importance, not just on screen but off. Mm-hmm. His DDP's chance at the big time, his shot at proving that he can work as a main event performer and the focus of a show. And man, did he ever nail it. DDP and Savage put on a well-crafted, tightly plotted match as only they could, providing a variety of action that played to both strengths and provided some great character moments, all wrapped up in an angry, forceful confrontation that was brutal from start to finish and never let up. Savage did his best to make Paige look like a million bucks, and Paige proved that he could rise to main event level with a truly star-making performance. If we're talking matches of the series, the sheer importance of this one makes it worthy, but it helps that it's an awesome match as well. Agreed, yeah. Now the awards nobody wants. (laughs) So first up, our least valuable performers. So these are the people that either didn't add anything or actively took away from the show's. So with this one, I will let you pick up to three. Okay. So, shouldn't be a surprise, but first one I have on here is Hollywood Hogan. This isn't one of those series like, say, Starcade, where you have just, like, a truly terrible match, like Starcade 94. Right. Or his really, really ego-driven stuff where, you know, he takes five finishers, pops up, and wins. Or, famously, he takes a rainy side double drop to wake himself up. <laughs> right. Yes. It happens on a Clash Championship, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I forgot about that. He somehow gets powered up by taking two of the dangerous move in the industry. <laughs> One thing I experienced just so sporadic. So it, he's like the big folks of the company and him being so infrequent there is a little thing. When he does appear, I wasn't a huge fan of the tag team baseball bat in the pole match. Mm-hmm. For me, it felt a lot like just doing a lot of house show stick. 
it only really sort of gets better towards the end when they get more intense and you have the turn from him isn't too bad and it kind of works storyline wise although it maybe isn't his fault but the big moment that should be really most important is not even shown on spring stampede when he goes back out and attacks Randy savage and kevin nash they show you on the nitro after oh by the way this happened you probably know yeah. this happened that's a time management thing. There's a lot of awkwardness to his performances. Yeah. Like you said, it's not necessarily his fault a lot of the time, but it can't be denied. There's a lot of awkwardness to his performances. It also just occurred to me that it's interesting. 1994 is, they're talking frequently about Hulk Hogan's coming, Hulk Hogan's coming. We skip a couple of years, then we're at 1997. Again, the show is about Hogan's appearing later. Yeah. That's an interesting other tie between the shows that I didn't detect at first. Right. And the other thing with Hogan, obviously, he does shove Randy Savage off the top rope, which is a planned spot. It's like he goes off script or anything. But he does legitimately injure Randy Savage in that, so that doesn't help my opinion of him. I was going to feel bad, honestly, about picking people that don't have multiple appearances. But sometimes when their appearances is so bad, you really have to. So I have uh, Hardcore Hack. Yeah, he was, he, was, he was in the running for mine, too. He can't, I mean... His whole thing is he uses weapons in a creative way, uh, like, you know, Russian leg sweep on, you know, on a barricade or just, like, swing and stuff around. And he's, like, seemingly half drunk, which is not super surprising with him. And the way he delivers his weird cells on things, landing wrong. That, that, that one point where he tries to suplex Bigelow and just, like, drops him on his own knee. Yeah. Nearly breaks his dang leg. Yeah, it's... right. He can't even do his own shtick properly, which is a, definitely an arc against him. Yeah. Uh, with the third choice, I'm back and forth on this one. Again, do I include people that appear only once? And the other thing is, is it a case where they perform badly and let's say I expect something from him? Like, I was tempted to include either Man Cow or Jimmy Hart for that match they had. But at the same time, I wouldn't do Man Cow because he's not even a wrestler. So I can't go, oh, Man Cow... His other performances are so much better, you know. Right. His match with Flair is amazing. (laughs) Though. That would be a major test of the Flair broom theory, right? Yes. (laughs) And to be fair, Jimmy Hart is around wrestling. I hope he would know wrestling better, but he also doesn't do wrestling, like the move wise. At that point, he's like in his early 50s. So I feel bad. I'd feel bad putting him on there because he had no other chance to use a sports comparison. (laughs) If you're in a team that's not doing great and you're the kicker, so you only appear like twice to make a field goal. You have very few chances to do things right. So if you miss one of your field goals out of two, that's a bad average for you. <laughs> you have so little chance to fix it. So I was tempted that to pick a third person, honestly. I mean, do I put Norman Smiley because his one appearance is so grating and nonsensical? I'm very tempted to. I think if we're going to look at people long-term... And this is probably why he's the third person I pick. Uh, they say Scott Steiner, just because he really had to f- fight to get his forces he know he could do. You know he could have these matches where he just hard-hitting moves and doesn't stop and spend three minutes yelling at the crowd. Or Do- Doesn't become Scott Stallner. Yes, there you go. <laughs> doesn't have women like rubbing his pecs or anything. You see glimpses of that. Oddly, on the worst show, where two or three matches, he does a pretty good job of that, mm-hmm. but not being distracted by the crowd. But at the same time, you also have the weird thing where somehow he blinds the wall in his first match on the yes. show. 
And the wall can't distinguish between him, the giant ball of muscle, and the referee. Yeah. So he has that dumb finish. Well, he's not the worst performance on the whole series. It takes so much to get him to have a good performance. And it's, it's, it's frustrating because you know he can do it. There's repeated annoyances with him that just kind of keep coming back. Yeah. That, yeah, he, he was in the running for mine, too, and it feels bad to say that because it's Scott Steiner, and he's good. But on this series, he, he was very infrequently good. Right. There's certain people that kind of escape this, unless they especially screw up, like, say, Buff Bagwell, because I don't set a high bar for Buff Bagwell. <laughs> he could just sort of step over that hurdle, probably, without too much effort. Well, for mine, they're all in there because of a single show. Kind of figured. But they were responsible for a great deal on that single show. Okay. So my first choice is Vince Russo. Ah. Not only was he in large part responsible for the absolute disaster that was Spring Stampede 2000, he was even nice enough to come out on camera and awkwardly interfere in one of the matches and even failed at putting on a shirt. (laughs) True. He gave us the only actual bad show on this series, Mm -hmm. and then went, what's the opposite of above and beyond? Below and before? Yeah. Something like that, sure. That. His uh, his compatriot, by the way, Eric Bischoff, who was also probably in large part responsible for Spring Stampede 2000, escapes being on this list because he was also probably in large part responsible for 97, 98, and 99. So he gave us several good shows that he was in part responsible for before the bad show. Mm. (laughs) And his on-camera work in general was, was good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I generally found him, even on 2000, he was actually, I was considering him for MVP for 2000 because his on-camera work was actually really strong on that show. I think it only held back by him being a bit too stone-faced in the DDP versus Jarrett match. Yeah. Which I think was him trying not to give away things. But it was but weird. It was like, yeah, do I really think he's there to help for DDP? No. They needed him to come out later, I think, and it yeah. would have been fine. My second one, mm-hmm. Mark Madden. Oh, yeah. Spring Stampede 2000 is already awful. Mark Madden constantly makes it worse. With a wide variety of horrible, offensive jokes and nonsensical comments, Madden is a constant presence on the show, and I found him wearing on my already frayed nerves. Mm-hmm. He is bad enough when the action in the ring is at least okay, but when the action and the angles are as bad as they tend to be on 2000, Madden makes things far, far worse. Even Tony just kind of starts ignoring him towards the end of the show, playing with papers on his desk rather than paying any attention to him. Yeah. A good commentator can make a bad show watchable, as we found with Bobby Heenan on Starcade 94, I recall you mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Madden can make a good show near unwatchable, and 2000 is far, far from a good show. And I think we can pretty much say without any uh, uncertainty, you don't want Madden calling a match involving a woman in any capacity no no like near the ring even adjacent to the ring i dearly hope that is just the character he's playing on tv because my goodness what a horrible horrible person he's playing yeah i'd be curious to listen to him because he does like he has a radio show or i think he has a podcast because you know everyone has podcasts yes if two nobody's like us can get a podcast mark madden can certainly get a podcast right right <laughs> so i'd be curious to hear some of that like if is he still that way or not i'd be surprised if he was i mean it really feels like it's it's got to be just an over-the-top thing he's doing for tv yeah but especially since the only thing i know about from him in wcw before this point is when he reports bill watts uh racism all right, right. it's like that sounds like more of a stand-up guy than 
what he appears to be when he gets on the 2000 shows. So yeah, I mean, his uh, other than that, his off-camera stuff, or very frequently on camera, say because the occasion show in the back was he was the guy to ask the the leading questions like on the website. And right. Yeah. Well, that poor guy's got to type out the random thoughts of people. That guy, MVP on a show at some point. Throwing <laughs> award for keeping just for having just get the most complicated and bizarre promo, like if Savage does one or something like that. Yes, or if Warrior did one of those when he came in, mm-hmm. then that guy will get MVP for having to transcribe that. Yeah, exactly. And my last one, Scott Hudson. Oh, okay, the third member of the 2000 commentary team does not normally tick me off this much. But on Spring Stampede 2000, he just seemed completely off his game. Not that it was an easy show to call, but Hudson often made very little sense, misunderstanding comments or jokes in frankly bizarre fashion. Mm -hmm. Worse, in an attempt to make 2000 look like something other than a dumpster fire, he frequently dramatically oversold the action, calling matches like they were epics and assigning them unearned praise. Even the show's few good matches like Sting vs. Booker T., suffered from moments like that, where I just found it was hard to enjoy what they were doing well because Hudson, and again, Madden, kept calling the match like it was the greatest thing since Flair Steamboat. Yeah. It's it's a good match, but they're treating it like it's the conclusion to a months-long feud and an hour-long epic match. Which one was the one that would always was always talking about how they've used everything in their arsenal? That, that's both of them, yeah. I think yeah. Hudson starts that and then Madden continues, and they're like, oh my, no, they haven't. You blatantly have not used everything. We haven't seen any of their finishers yet at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hudson was just so insincere on 2000 that it hurt even good moments that that show had. Right. He's a decent straight man, I, in general, yeah. but yeah, he was not good in this. I haven't had a major problem with him on most of the other times that we've seen him. Yeah. I think there's been one or two comments that we've criticized occasionally, but he's just kind of generic announcer guy for most of the time. But man, on Spring Stampede 2000, he was just ticking me off mm-hmm. and getting in the way of me even trying to enjoy the show. So those two are so bad, Norman Smiley escapes your wrath. That's impressive. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I still kind of hold out this little bit of love for Norman in my heart for that 1998 performance against Prince Iakea, mm-hmm. where he was like, brilliant technical wrestler. Right. So I don't I don't hate Norman Smiley. I like Norman Smiley. And that's exactly why I'm always so disappointed with hardcore Norman Smiley. No, yeah, no, I agree. That's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. He's shown he can do so much better. Yeah. And his future from the show and his past to us now is, of course, when he retires and trains people in WB and other And places. you can totally see why. I mean, yeah. he's a good technical wrestler and knows how to put a match together. Yeah. It's just, it's surprising. I, I always have wondered and have never been able to find if there's some story behind that, like if he got injured or something and just I don't couldn't so. do that. But it just seems like it's a re-gimmicking that they just think yeah. that's what works, and it doesn't. Yeah, it's a case of them taking a guy, and you use the history of WCW of this, guys that can perform... But don't have that sort of genesis qua or like some extra flash to the performance. Brad Armstrong is saddled with so many gimmicks like Arachnaman and yeah, yeah. Candyman and uh, Roadkill, I believe. It's like, the he's one. good. Just slap an America jacket on him and let him wrestle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's really what it is with Numerous Miley. Yeah. Worst matches of the series. So pick up to three. All right. I'll see how much ours overlap. Yeah, I'll be I know, interested I with this. <laughs> I definitely didn't pick one. I don't hate it as much as you do. and want to know you all have your, your say on, so I'll leave that for you. Okay. I will start out with Norman Smiley versus Terry Funk from 
Rick Tippy 2000. It's dumb. It's nonsensical. He's hiding. So when someone comes over, he yells. So you won't find him? Yeah. Oh. Apparently, everyone hates him because they're constantly trying to point him out. The people backstage just sell him out to Terry Funk. They do stupid spots like dumping a bunch of Diet Coke cans on the guy. Slamming a guy on a table that clearly not designed to break one of those big plastic tables. Oh my gosh, yeah, that was so And scary. just sort of tipping it over and just, ah, whatever. Norris Miley famous to try to escape three feet away from a guy while he watches a clamp a ladder. To a pipe that would be in his vision even if he hadn't seen you do yeah. it. Yes. And you're still quite in reach. And of course, as I mentioned, covering other hardcore matches, even if you can go, oh, this is all just stupid fun, they're giving chairs of concussions and right. nasty, grisly chair shots. Like hitting the back of Terry Funk's head. Him leaning into the laptop shots are, yeah. the, are the scariest thing to me in that match. Because you can see those are hitting very hard and he's lunging his face into them. Yes. And it's just like, that will not be good for you. Yeah. Like, no, no, none of them are as concussion heavy as Starcade 2000, I believe. Him and Crowbar, Terry Funk Crowbar, that is. Yes. Because the unprotected chair shot oh, thing. Oh, God, that one was that, I guess trying to do the Brock McFoley thing, but first off, don't. And second off, not as well. And, 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 and also, if you accept the drop And that, also put the handcuffs on behind the person's back, that, not in yeah. front. Yeah. But yeah, so those are not good. Uh, second, <laughs> second is one that, as I said at the time, if you look at the names of people involved, it should be really good. If you consider what year the show takes place in, you still expect more from it. And unfortunately, I did not get that from the Kurt Hennig British Bulldog match from '98. Mm-hmm. I think it's a case like with Savage, where they're up on the same show. Hennig is too hard to be working, but he's Hennig, and he just won't get all up too hard. I can't work the show unless he literally like can't wake up in the morning and get out of bed. So he could barely move. British Bulldog, because of a number of things, injuries and such. This is before the famous trap door fall, right, to be fair. Yeah. But he had a lot of problems before that. And his uh, personal demon, let's say, is the code word they use. Like that. All the people that have had classic matches within 10 years of this show. And it's just a boring punch kick match. It's slow enough until the guy starts working the leg of a guy and gets even worse. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have all the nonsense. Like, you have Rude handcuffed to Neidhart, who's also not wearing a shirt for some reason, which is weird. <laughs> Going for a real, like, cops at 3 a.m. vibe with Neidhart, with being handcuffed and shirtless. <laughs> That's true. That's and true. laughing and crazy. <laughs> the fact that it barely keeps Rude from interfering. Rude can get 90% in the way in the ring before he's pulled out. And, of course, the cop. I still don't know how this is supposed to make any sense. They had a legitimate cop do the handcuffing. And at some point, he, like, backs at a camera frame. They must, like, chloroform him and swap him out with Virgil <laughs> slash Vincent. Maybe what it actually is is Virgil, like, quantum leaped into him. Oh. <laughs> gotcha. But it's, it's clearly not Vin- It's not like it's a good disguise of Vincent as the original cop. It's not Vincent. Right. No, no. It's that... It's an actual police officer, or, yeah. or the actor playing a police yeah. officer. It's not yeah, Vincent just, anyway, yeah. I guess just backs out of camera frame, and they swap him out, body snatcher style. It's all just an elaborate thing so they can beat up Neidhart and Rich Bulldog with a stick, and they leave. 
Uh, and uh, I have two picks for this. I, I was back and forth on it. I think to be nice, I'm not going to go with my second choice. So I'm, I know there's no way to be nice with picking worst matches, but I'm trying. Okay. So my third pick for worst match of the series is this going in front of us Conan. Oh, okay. So it's not like the worst work match. I mean, they don't botch stuff all the time like we see like on Slambury 2000. That match would be two people that should be able to work a match and just mess up every other move they try to do. But it's such a badly produced slash booked match where it's just 90% Disco Inferno dominating Conan with offensive Morgan not terrible. It's not impressive. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's some big power wrestler who can throw Conan around. You're like, wow, this is amazing to see what he can do. It's generic heel offense that should come a few minutes into a match. And then go away for the end, but starts out like right away and just takes up so much of the match. Conan gets his big comeback and wind with almost little effort after being controlled so much. And also, doesn't quite hit his move right, where it says his weird suplex that's almost a DT where he lets him go and it looks awkward. So it's a badly booked match that's not interesting <laughs> and it's not worth it. For the record, the match I. I was tied between was that and the Man Cow Jimmy Hart match. Oh, okay. That was me being nice by not picking them. All right. All right. All right. I I was less nice. Okay. So my first of my three matches is Man Cow versus Jimmy Hart. (laughs) Well, there you go. Let's you say say your piece on it then. Yep. I know this was short. I know it's between a manager and a radio personality. I know I shouldn't have expectations for it, but it was just so bad. (laughs) Agreed. Even lowering my expectations, this was awful. So much so that it had to be clear when planning the show that it was going to be awful. But they still put it on. Mm -hmm. There just could not have been any expectation that this would be anything but terrible. And yet they still chose to put it on the show. And that is what makes it worthy of my list. They knew this was going to suck. Yes. And they did not come up with some other plan. So I noticed there's two things about that. One, why is it not a dark match for the Chicago yes. crowd? Yes. They've done matches like this before. Who gives a crap about Man Cow outside of Chicago at that point, right. right? Right. So, yeah, just do a dark match like you did with the Brady Bunch versus Partridge Family one early in the series. Yeah, 94. That yeah. one I wanted to have on the show, dang it, because yeah. that would have been <laughs> hilarious. Right, right, right. Now, as I said on covering that show, Bischoff, on his podcast, his defense of the match is... Look at all the promotions we got with Man Cow hyping the show because he's going to be on it. But as I said before, you could have just made him like a guest host or a backstage ring announcer. Or manager for, uh, he picks a wrestler to sponsor and yeah. Jimmy Hart sponsors Kale or whatever his name was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there's other things they could have done when they realized, wow, this is going to be a steaming pile of monkey crap. Right. The other thing about this match, as far as the show, as I said before, it's terrible placement for it. Yeah. It's the second, second match, match. The second match out of fourteen. I think the only place they could have placed it that would have been worse is first, right? Because it would have like set the tone for the show with this pile of crap, right? I mean, yeah. If you're gonna have this match, I would say put it after all of the initial matches. Put yeah. it after the tag matches. Make it the bathroom and, break. Yeah, make it bathroom break and make it a separation between tournament. Yeah, but better, just don't do it. Yeah. Even better, don't do it a second time, a different show. Yeah. Which they do. My second match, 
Might as well just one. Terry Funk versus Norman Smiley. Yeah. Spring Stampede 2000. Total agreement. Though this was a little better than their Slampery 2000, showing it was not better by much. Right. It was just plain stupid. Stupid and dangerous. It was filled with dumb spots where people did things that they just wouldn't do. Yeah. And the performers took enormous, totally unnecessary risk with each other's safety. And my third match? Mm Mm-hmm. Bam Bam Bigelow versus Hardcore Hack, Spring Stampede 1999. Yeah. Another hardcore match with no plot, no complexity, no nothing besides guys mindlessly clubbing each other with weapons and doing dumb things with ladders. Uh-huh. What really earned this one its place on the list, though, is the spot where Hack climbed a ladder by the ropes for no reason other than to fall off the ladder yeah. through the table outside the ring. There was just blatantly nothing else he could ever have accomplished there. Yeah, right? Well, there's another thing about that match. So, they, well, I feel like it's supposed to be a planned spot, the bit where Chastity can't get her fire signature thing to work. I feel like that is a planned spot, because she had interfered with that before. Yeah. Like, on the show before, she does that to turn against Raven. The announcers, they don't try to gloss over what happened. They're like, oh, look, she, you know, she couldn't get it to work, haha. Which, so it feels like a natural thing to happen. But this match is so poorly performed, I honestly do not know if that was accidental. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell what the botches are in that match. Right, right, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. she could have legitimately not gotten into work, and maybe the plan was just to spray him down, and he, he no-sells it, like, because yeah, his head's on fire, because the tattoo or something. <laughs> something. I could see that being a spot, so I honestly don't know if they messed up, and that's sad. Yeah. I will know. Um, there's there's one match that I'm sure you were expecting to be on there. It will show up later. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. It only avoided this list because it's going to appear later. Oh, okay. And Good. all of these were totally worthy of being on here themselves. So I had four. I had to cut one. I cut the one that would get a different award. I was torn whether to include the wall uh, Scott Steiner match I referenced before, where Blinded Man can't distinguish ref yeah. from Scott Steiner. But honestly, before... The like what minute and a half because the match is super short. Yeah, it's it's a it's super okay. Short, it's super okay. short inoffensive match. Yeah, until that spot. Yeah, right. Now for the series overall, we've got some other awards to hand out. So first up, your best commentary team. So which commentary team did you enjoy the most? And if they're on more than one show, on which show? Okay. For me, it really comes down to the first two shows. Mm-hmm. So that is Shivani and Heenan on 94 versus Shivani and Heenan and Dusty on 97. Yep. I mean, I'm trying, I'm really going back and forth on this one. There's no bad choice, I think, between the two. No, yeah. On one hand, I really do like the sort of one-to-one commentary you get with Heenan and Shivani. They feel like a natural banner between two people, which hopefully our show feels like. You know, to some degree, it's a thing to aim for, Heenan commentary, you know? Mm-hmm. At the same time, Dusty can really add a lot to it with his responses to things and how just how into the show he gets. But because we're at peak NWO versus WCW, so he's really like, come on, get him. He's really excited yes. about it. Yeah. Arguably, there's times where there are three of them, they kind of fight for time. But, hmm. I think for me, I'm going to narrowly pick, I'm going to get to my own notes, by the way. I'm going to narrowly pick 94 words, Heenan and Shivani. Okay. They really have a good banter together. They both take the show seriously, but will also make good jokes at time. I really enjoy them on commentary on a lot of the matches. Mm-hmm. 
I like their pairing. All right. This won't surprise you, Mm -hmm. but for me, it is Tony, Bobby, and Dusty from Spring Stampede 97. Okay. The three are, as always, just terrifically fun to listen to, Mm -hmm. with their own enjoyment of the show coming through strongly. They do have some missteps this time, most notably the Akira Hokuto versus Medusa match, where they spend like half the match discussing something else entirely. Oh, yeah. But the combination of Dusty's bonkers lines and Heenan's snark, with Tony ensuring the train doesn't go too far off the rails, just makes them plain fun. Mm -hmm. I will give an honorable mention to the Tony and Bobby team on 1994 as well, where Heenan made it his personal mission to get Tony to crack up multiple times on the show. I just felt like you can tell this is early in their work together because there's a couple points where Tony doesn't react to something that he sure. that he would later. Yeah. But on this one, I think they just hadn't quite hit their stride to me yet. Fair enough. And then I, I will also give an honorable mention to the Tony, Bobby, and Mike Tanay team on 1999, where Tony was in just this wonderfully snarky mood the entire night. It was, yeah. And it gave the team a totally different atmosphere than normal. So really, again, aside from the 2000 show, mm-hmm. which had a terrible commentary yeah. <laughs> experience along with a terrible just about everything else, mm-hmm. all the commentary teams on this series were good. Yeah. But the Tony Bobby Dusty just edges so slightly ahead to me still. Yeah, I can see that. All right. This one I had trouble with. Best promos or non-match segments. So up to three of the best promos or non-match segments, Al. Yeah, I'm curious if we're going to overlap because there's not a lot over throughout the shows mm-hmm. up until 2000, and then they're all like 20 seconds long. <laughs> yeah. It basically, Oakland will ask a question, you have 10 seconds to answer it, and then walk off camera. Yes. And or be attacked behind by somebody. Yeah. Or both sometimes. Okay, so I've got 1994. Maybe charting a little bit, but before the Sting Rude match. You have Harley Race coming out and now oh, okay. take Bear's yeah. attentions. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it leads right into the match with Harley throwing the most blatantly telegraph punch in history, throwing his arm like four feet back so Sting will be able to stop and punch him. <laughs> and then the enjoyment of Heenan acting like Sting attacked this poor old man for no reason <laughs> yes. while he was punching him. I love it. Yeah, that's a good bit. Since I don't know if you're going to include it. I'm going, going to include that Booker T promo. <laughs> Putting aside the word they had to cut out on Peacock, aside from that, it is actually a good promo. It is. Yeah. yeah. Sherry really controls things well. Oakland is smart enough to turn and start talking to Stevie Ray. Who does not react one bit. No. Amazing. He, like, that nearly earned Stevie Ray MVP right there, just yeah. for the solid rock of performance yeah. he gave there. Sherry did a good bit of quickly sort of giving solace to Booker, like, it's okay, it's decayed, and then doing her bit really well, I thought. Mm-hmm. I will say that I did not pick that one, but it is definitely an honorable mention right. for how well they do outside of that moment. Yeah, that yeah. they recover so, so, so well right. from what would have just shut down a promo. Yeah. Like, I mean, I could have seen them just being, okay, cut, none of you can get it together after that, let's just move on. But... Yeah. They pull it all together. And Booker T himself even ends the promo and yeah. ends it strong. That's true. Yeah. Amazing job on that on that front. Um, lastly, guy, one show appearance, but it's sort of a short but sweet bit. Chris Jericho's pre-match promo is really good. Mm-hmm. He really sets up next month's show with Slamboree, where he's taking shots at D-Blinko again. We're talking about four about shows you can watch as a non-fan versus the fan. 
So if you're hanging out with your, you know, your buddy night to night, April, and you're watching the show because he's watching, you have no idea who any of these people are. And even if he's trying to tell you, oh, this guy's good, this guy's a bad guy, blah, blah, blah. When you see Derek come out, do is, I want you to want me, bit with that pause in there, and then really to take in shots at Dave Malenko, you know from the go-go, he is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. It's a short bit there that really helps the crowd know to spawn properly, and again, expands the story for later. Yeah. You want to see him guys come up, and as you and you get more of that, and then build up a nitro to Slamboree, and you finally get the payoff. All right, my three. Okay. I have Luger and Giant, pre-match promo, Spring Stampede 1997. Right, yeah. This one excellently built up their reverence for the WCW title, their own bonds of friendship, their shared goal of defeating the NWO, and their refusal to let the upcoming match drive a wedge between them, all themes that effectively foreshadowed the way the match would turn out and added to the quality of the finish. Yeah. Both guys just did a terrific job with this one and made their match feel supremely important. Mm-hmm. Second up, I will agree with you, Chris Jericho's pre-match promo, Spring Stampede 1998. Mm-hmm. An excellent delusional heel performance yeah. from Jericho with this one. As he portrayed a genuine belief that the crowd loved him yeah. when they very much did not. Mm-hmm. And he respectfully, read disrespectfully, commented on his defeat of Dean Malenko to really, really rile the crowd up. Yes. Jericho is just a master of getting heat from the crowd, and this one is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. And then, an unusual one, Slamboree Ad, Spring Stampede 1997. Oh, okay. You remember this one, the unusual, deadly, serious ad. Oh, right. With the various yeah. commentators talking about how there's this dire threat of the NWO and WCW has to unite and find a leader and face the threat. Yeah. It's one of the best ads WCW ever did. Yeah. Really blew me away seeing that one. I, I wanted to watch that Slamboree again, even though I knew it didn't end up as important as they were yeah. talking about, but it's just, they did such a good job with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've forgotten that, but that's a good one as well, yeah. Not all matches are the usual sort of singles or tag match. So, what was your favorite gimmick match on the series? Okay, so, interestingly, especially with the Russo show at the end, there's not a lot of the craziness you would necessarily expect the only one that really gets you like a weird gimmick, and even then the execution is not that weird, is that bat in the pole match mm-hmm. '98, which I didn't like that much. For me, it comes down to basically the different version they did of no DQ matches, mm-hmm. whether it was Ravens Rules or just no DQ or just this, whatever they feel like, you know. Like it's not no DQ for DDP and Jeff Jarrett 2000, Springs Heavy, for instance, but they. It wandered the crowd for five minutes, so I guess it is. It's just yeah. no count out. That time period is just, yeah. what, what is in the rules? What's outside the rules? Who knows? Who cares? Doesn't matter. So for looking at the best OEQ matches, it's tough because I do like the Ravens rules match a lot from 98. My only issue with that is that it's constant interference from lots of people. So when one guy interferes at the end, it's like the ninth person to interfere in the match. Mm-hmm. So it's not as impactful as if they had had Raven use weapons and like more subtle interference. And then, oh, someone interfered in the match. So for me, best no DQ match, as matches covered before on this episode already, is the no DQ match between Ray Savage and DDP. Okay. I thought they used the ability to leave the ringside area and fight towards the front really well. And just sort of allow the rules to be stretched a bit 
without going so far to have, you know, NWO run and beat up DDP, which was suddenly in the rule, but they didn't do it, which is nice. Okay. Uh, for mine, I will go with the one you didn't choose. Okay. I'm going to say Raven's Rules, DDP versus Raven from Spring Stampede 98. It's not a secret that I'm not generally a fan of hardcore matches we watch. That's why two of them were my worst matches of the series. Yeah. Usually they don't have a plot consisting just of shots with random weapons until the match just kind of decides to be over. Right. This match was the exception. Diamond Dallas Page and Raven provided a hardcore match with an actual honest-to-goodness story crafted with an ascending intensity and making full use of not just the ring, not just a wide variety of weapons, not even just the flock, but the vast majority of the show's set as well. Yeah. From the wrestling-focused start to the creative brawl by the set to the chaotic flock interference late match, this was just a fun match to watch, and it always kept me guessing. So it's a great match. And I, I just I wanted to pick that one for the gimmick mm. one because I feel like it fully dives into the gimmick. Yeah. It sure. like fully is a hardcore match. Like no, no yeah, question. Yeah. But they've given it a full solid story all the same, which right. you normally don't get with those. However, if you go by the Sting Ray Savage match that literally follows that, they use a bale of hay as a weapon, so that should give them an edge. No, that uh, that does not. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that as much. It's just like, Sting is like... <laughs> and the, the commentary team honestly trying to sell us on that being one of the deadliest things out there. <laughs> I get that it's like, like it's not easy to do, but it's like, yeah, because of like the way hay works and the bailing and everything. But yeah, Sting picking a bale of hay, doing almost no damage and littering his hair and outfit with yes. hay... It was not worth it, man. It was not yeah, worth it. yeah. All right, Al, your worst type of gimmick match. And if there's a specific match you want to call out, that's fine, but you can just name the type as well if you right. prefer. I mean, as we've stated, the hardcore matches on this show and series have not been good. If I'm going to pick worst one, probably for sheer annoyance, it's going to be Terry Funk, Norman Smiley. Yeah. There's a, just a bizarre comedy of errors aspect for the most part, with Bam Bigelow and Hardcore Hack. That makes me, I'm not going to say like it more, but hate it less, I guess. Mm-hmm. Other than trying to use the uh, fire extinguisher and having that not work. They don't go for the dumb comedy in that, along with it's supposed to be dangerous weapons. It's still dumb and stupid, but it's less annoyingly dumb and stupid to me than the screaming and smiley and all that nonsense. Okay. For me, you can probably guess this one. Mm-hmm. Suicide 6 Cruiserweight Match. Oh, there we go. Spring Stampede 2000. I know you were expecting that to be in the worst three earlier. I was. This is the only reason that it, that it wasn't. This didn't sound that awful at first. At heart, it should have just been a chaotic Cruiserweight match. But the way it was done on Spring Stampede 2000, it just made me angry. And being angry is not conducive to being entertained. The rules were bizarrely unclear. Was everyone legal at once? Were they tagging in and out just without actual tags? Were they just getting in when someone left? And then why did they sometimes get in before someone else left and stay? Mm -hmm. Who was legal and who wasn't? Sometimes the performers didn't even seem to know what was supposed to be going on. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, by the way, small question. Who the heck was in the dang match in the first place? (laughs) What we counted was 11 people, I think, involved total? I think so, yeah. Yeah, 11 people in the six-man match, yeah. The rules sucked. The plotting sucked. The performances sucked too. So basically, none of this was good. And it also had a crappy botch filled finish. 
Oh, yeah. Here is hoping that WCW never does this match type again. Yeah. I said before, I look at the buildup on that show to how the tournament is supposed to work. Like, they made the top guys fight each other for one spot, the one the DDP got. Yeah. Or they said, here's a tournament between these tag teams, and they made people qualify for them. Like, they made Sting qualify for the U.S. title tournament, and they tried to make Sid, and he got bumped out. It didn't make any sense, but they had the three-team oh, match yeah. determine whoever the hardcore champion kind of would be. But at least that's something. If you watch the Thunder after the reboot Nitro, they just go, we're having a six-man match, and these people are going to be a three-on-three match on this show. Enjoy. And then... And it's not like a qualification. It's just, no. they're in this match. Here's them in another match. Right. Yeah. And we're just going to hurl them into a blender, basically, and right. see what comes out on the, on the next The question is, like, why is Shannon Moore in the match... And not Shane Helms. And Helms, yes. And then Shane Helms goes on to basically do a whole crap ton of things in the match. So you're like, correct, yeah. What is going on? I get picking Crowbar over David Flair in pretty much any instance, honestly. But yeah, I love to know why he's in it and not David Flair. Yeah. For instance, yeah, example. All right. So here is a fun one that was also a pretty tough choice. Okay. Best performer with a single Spring Stampede appearance. So of those, I believe it was 78 people. Yes. Who was the one you really would have loved to see again the most? Okay. I feel like you're going to guess who I'm picking right off the bat, and I might surprise you. In my heart of hearts, the answer is, of course, La Parca. <laughs> After all this time, seeing him in ancillary performances, like being in the ring during Sting's celebration, mm-hmm. or seeing why Nitro and Thunder's building up shows, is what for research Seeing him finally get his due, and more importantly, not in Magic at Disco Inferno, which I know that happens. I'm like, okay, good. This can really work. Yeah, he had a, he had a genuinely good match. He did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If I'm being 100% fair, though, there's other people that had one-up performances that arguably more qualify more. And I think it comes down to, for me, there's people that ultimately have one appearance in a single match that will make it onto my Ultimate Spring Stampede show. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, that bumps him ahead. So one such person is Brian Pillman. Okay. I thought he was really good in his performance against Stephen Regal. They did a great story of how he can hang with Regal, like, because Regal is not taking him seriously at first. Then Regal is trying to hide behind the time limit. They really work right up the time limit part very well, I thought. It's nice to see him, because as a point later, we see him post-legit injury, and he can't work the same way again. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice bit toward the tail end of his fully active in-ring career to see um, what he could really do as a more seasoned performer than, say, 1991-92, when athletically he's all there, but he's not quite got his character down. Yeah. He's really got it down on this show. Pure performance, him as a one-off, yeah, absolutely really good. Okay. In my heart of heart, Laparca is still there. <laughs> yeah. Just know that. I had a lot of trouble with this because there are a lot of good single-appearance performers on this show. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Brian Pillman, La Parca, The Great Muda, yeah. Steve Austin, Blitzkrieg, mm-hmm. Chavo Guerrero Jr. And though he's not my pick, I do want to give an honorable mention, especially to Bunkhouse Buck, <laughs> who seriously impressed me on this show, especially after an awful performance on our Slamboree run. Seriously, if I could count those in the same series and in reverse actual chronological order, right. he'd be getting most improved. Mm-hmm, sure. He just seemed like a totally different wrestler, a wild and entertaining brawler who put on a great show with Dustin Rhodes. But my pick, which surprised me actually thinking that this could be a pick, but it can, uh-huh. 
is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Oh, you know, it's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Not only a steamboat, you know, steamboat. Right. He actually went above and beyond in his single appearance, putting on an absolutely epic match that went full tilt the whole way and adding complexity and depth to his character in the process. He could have just gone out there and been Ricky Steamboat, but he elevated his performance beyond even his normal high quality, making for an incredibly memorable single appearance. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what got me on it and, and made me think, yeah, I do want to say that, even yeah. though it's Ricky Steamboat. Everyone knows I'd like to see more Ricky Steamboat. Of course, yeah. But with this one, I, I specifically want to highlight, I want to see this Ricky Steamboat again. Gotcha. The developments he made to his character, the complexity he made to his character. I would love to have seen the development of that further. Yeah. Again on the show. I thought I was sure you were going with Chavo from the point of off performance, which was really good. Chavo was excellent as well. Like, no, like I said, no question. There's a ton of the people on that single appearance list did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. All right. Most improved. Is there anyone you thought wasn't too great or needed some improvement when they first showed up, but then they show up again later and turn things around or just do a much better job? If you're definitely like, I have phone, I thought I hadn't filled that out, but I actually did. Okay. Because it's in my fold in my notes. I'm like, did I pick one? Oh, wait. <laughs> it's in my fold. Never mind. This is a guy that appears in almost every show. He's not actively a wrestler at the first show, but then he has a really good performance. And even on Spring Stampede 2000, which, as we've established, is garbage, outside of the context of his match being a heel versus heel match, he did a really good job. So, most proof for me is Billy Kidman. Oh, okay. Like I said, he starts out as just a guy that interferes in the DDP Raven match. That's, yeah, yeah. He's also, I believe, gets involved in the Goldberg's Goldberg yeah, Saturn match. Saturn, yep. Yeah, true. And then he jumps the next year where he's went after the Tag Team Champions with Rey Mysterio. And they have a good match that both showed the athleticism, but also pushes the will they, won't they turn each other thing because they both want the title. And shows their perseverance in getting through some pretty nasty hits they take during that match yeah. as well, yeah. But yeah, it's a nice little story because Kidman was Cruiserweight Champion, lose it to Mysterio, and the next week the two of them win the tag titles, and now here they are against each other again. It's an image so changed mm-hmm. by that. But yeah, as so I think about it, like, he appears so many times, he has a good arc, outside of DDP, obviously, he has best arc of going from guy just around acting like he does heroin, scratching himself all the time, to yeah. being a legitimately good performer. And even 2000, again, the match, his part of the match is really enjoyable. His very, very solid performance yeah. on 2000. Yeah, It's just a shame right. that it turns into a lopsided of him being beat up by Hogan segment. Yeah. All right. Um, I appreciate that you did not take the easy way out because I totally took the easy way out. Okay. <laughs> I am saying Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, okay. Not that he's bad at all in 1994, but he just clearly hasn't worked out everything about his character and style yet. Mm-hmm. And he's an opening match guy that doesn't even make the opening video package when literally every other match yes. on the card does. Yeah, every match is announced except his. Except his, yeah. And he's not mentioned at all once his match is done. It's true. Cut to 1997 and boom, Paige is an exceptional polished performer that's being asked to prove that he's worthy of being in the main event and does. So he gets another two main events on further shows and is second from the top on a third. He goes from being nobody to being somebody to being the top guy, and he works hard to get there and stay there. You can't help but be happy for the guy watching his rise, and this series, more than any other we've seen, highlights that. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. All right. Our best and worst spring stampedes. 
So it's a short series. So we're not doing three for three because that would be six and we don't have six shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Al, I would like you to pick your worst two and then your best two. Okay. I am genuinely curious if we're going to be the same on this or if we're okay. going to be different on yeah. this. Obviously, number one for worst brings at Pete is brings up at 2000. Mm-hmm. As we said, so many bad matches, too many matches, and this whole ADHD feel of the show. Match happened, immediately cut to the back for 20 seconds. They're done with that. Next thing. Go, 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 go. Move, move, move. No time for anything to breathe, any important thing to happen to have any impact on the show. Mm-hmm. And commentary is awful. Well, it's far less bad than the show that follows it. 1999 show for me is just too uneven. It's not a bad show, but there is too much filler here. Mm-hmm. They're trying out stuff, which I can appreciate, but I feel like enough stuff should be on pay-per-view here. On top of that, it's the last show that has any of the Western set, and they've lost most of it. Yeah. So... They kind of have whatever was left over after DDP and Raven broke it this year, right? Exactly, yeah. They couldn't be bothered. If 2000 is like a minus five-star show, X99 is like a one-star show, two-star show, maybe even that. I'm not sure what my restarting of that is, but it's, it's not a negative show. It's just... Yeah, that's good. It's it's a perfectly acceptable show, but it's not the earlier shows on the series. Right. Yeah. It has that is fluff and stuff I don't quite like as much. All right. Your best two? 997 is a really good show. It has a bunch of matches that'll be on my Ultimate Spring Stampede show. So obviously it's gotta be in my top one for that. It's the one that really gives us the full Western decor mm-hmm. and theme of everything, which thankfully lasts for at least two shows in some degree. It's really nice. There's very few misses here as far as the quality matches as well. Mm-hmm. And lastly, the original show, 1994, has a very strong match card. Again, I just see my ultimate spring stampede. It's got a lot of stuff from that. And the other thing is, going back, we talked about with the original series, the Starcade. They really nailed this like real sports competition mm-hmm. feel, 94, I thought quite well. Yeah, definitely. There's hints of the chaos there that will come by having a bunkhouse brawl and a hardcore like street fight on there. But you still feel like this is WCW not trying to go too far from its roots and giving a good show. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. Ready to see if we're the same? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. So worst, worst ones for me. Okay. Spring Stampede 2000. Yeah. Absolutely. An abysmal garbage heap of a show. Yes. Four team matches, multiple tournaments, hardcore stupidity, a botchy, unfollowable cruiserweight mess, Jimmy Hart versus Man Cow, tons of interference, insane, idiotic match finishes. If you want to know just how bad this show is, it fails at the most basic element of putting on a wrestling show, telling you who the hell is in the match three times. It's true, yeah. Things don't improve from there. It's not just one of the worst shows on this series. It is one of the worst shows that I have ever watched. Agreed. Yeah. And the other worst show, Spring Stampede 1999. All right. It is very unfair to put any other show in the worst shows category alongside 2000. Mm -hmm. There's a massive, massive gulf between this generally good show 
and the dumpster fire that is Spring Stampede 2000. Yeah. But we said we would pick two, so I'll pick two. Yeah. In 1999, while I still felt it was overall good, is flawed in more direct and obvious ways than any of the earlier shows, with a flow that kind of starts and stops and some real declines in presentation. There's still some absolutely terrific stuff on there, and it has a massive moment for DDP in particular, but it just isn't solidly, consistently good like the earlier shows. I'll say, like, if you can do one one comparison between shows, just like picking one moment, for instance, to compare one show to the other. So, 1998, which is the only, the only one that didn't get included either of them, it's probably mm-hmm. my number three best show, I guess, has Booker T, Chris Benoit match is really good. They have a screw finish, but it's a creatively done screw finish, really well executed. The 99, you have Booker T versus Scott Steiner, and we have real Stolly Scott yeah. Steiner. Yeah. And you know they can work. And so you have these two matches. That's just a sort of microcosm look at how they could just slightly do things worse on 99 than it would mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it really is for 99 just what, what got it on here. Because 98 has some problems as well. But 99, I think, just had consistent troubles. Right. That you'd get something good and be like, oh, yeah, that was really nice. And then the next match would be like, uh, that wasn't that great. Right. Then oh, that was really nice. Oh, that wasn't that great. It just didn't yeah. keep going. Well, like 98, for instance, 98 has that tag match with Buff Bagwell and... and Scott Steiner and... Yeah, Lex Luger. Lex Luger and Rick yeah. Steiner. Yeah, that yeah, wasn't yeah. very good. Yeah. Which is, it's not terrible. It feels like it should be a Nitro match. Mm-hmm. It just barely at that because it just ends so abruptly. But 99 has the Mike Whipwreck, uh, Scotty Riggs match, which is not terrible, but feels even less like it belongs in the show. Yeah. Because 98 is, is a fairly throwaway tag match, but involving top-tier talent. Exactly, yeah. So now for my best ones. All right. If 2000 was among the worst shows that I've ever seen, these two were among the best, not just in the series, but ever. Okay. Spring Stampede 1997. Okay. A brilliant show filled with exciting matches that can be both technical and vicious, sometimes at the same time. Mm -hmm. To make it even better, it's filled with major story developments and important moments for wrestlers' careers, most notably DDP's first shot at the big time and chance to prove that he could be a main eventer. It's not perfect, but it even manages to handle some of its flaws really well, rolling along smoothly despite a few hiccups along the way. It's a great show, topped off by perhaps the best set design that WCW has ever done. Agreed, yeah. You can feel the love the crew and the performers had for this one. Mm-hmm. And my other? Spring Stampede 1994. Hey! So we are a perfect match here. Oh, right. Again, an absolutely brilliant show. Consistently good to great matches, Wonderful character work and interesting storytelling and angles, all topped off by a really excited crowd that gives great reactions the whole night. It doesn't have the wonderful set of 1997, but it still has some great presentation elements with neat graphics and cool entrances that mm-hmm. give it a fun feel. Remember Steamboat's uh, Dragons oh, on his yeah, entrance yeah. and the uh, the wanted posters for the match yeah, graphics? Those are good, yeah. So cool. Yeah. It's a really enjoyable watch, and that's all before the epic main event that caps off one of the finest feuds in all of professional wrestling history with a truly tremendous match. Yeah. I've never been more glad that we didn't try to define which show gets first place, by the way, Mm -hmm. because there is no way in heck I could choose between those two. (laughs) They're both amazing shows. Honestly, 
except for the existence of Spring Stampede 2000, this is an exceptionally great series. Probably my favorite series that we've yet done. I will say Night 4 is an interesting what-if scenario in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Because I could see the way they were going with things. They could have actually tried to do some sort of double turn, mm-hmm. or at least partial turn. Half Dean would actually go heel and take Flair out and win the title. And now here is Steamboat as heel champion when Hogan shows up. That would be genuinely interesting. I yeah. could see that being kind of a cool, different match. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because unless I'm wrong, there has never been a, and never will be, obviously, a Steamboat Hogan match. Yeah, I don't know. Um, they may have, they may have been on sides in like um, a, a Survivor Series or something like that. Maybe, but I feel like yeah. they would have been on the same side in those. Yeah, exactly. So. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting. But yeah, heel Steamboat as the face of WCW again pushes the idea that he's the face of tradition, but he's also been corrupted to finally gain and hold power. And here's Hogan as the outsider, changing yeah. thing, but at the same time also a face. Yeah, and you could actually have the unusual situation of like Ric Flair supporting Hulk Hogan yeah, when I, he first enters or something. That'd be against longtime best bud Steamboat. That's yeah. That would be yeah, that's a genuinely interesting alternate history there. Right? Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I think you'd agree on this. Easy, easy series recommendation for anyone to watch, at least up through nineteen ninety-nine. Yeah. And yeah, ninety four has a few Mistime things here and there. The ending with the Rick Rude Sting match, for instance. Stuff that almost goes awry, like Vader tossing Bossman out of the oh, ring. And that was terrifying. And yeah. <laughs> but nothing like, again, like even for Hardcore Hack trying to suplex Bigelow and just right. messing his leg up somehow and deserve falling over like he couldn't do it. Or That's the thing with 94 and with 97 is there's things that go wrong, but they really, really quickly and expertly recover yeah. from them every single time. And even though I don't necessarily enjoy as much as like you do, like, for instance, I didn't care for the Dustin Rhodes Bunkhouse Buck match as you did. I'm not going to say it's bad. No. I didn't care for it as much, but it's better than anything on 2000. Yes. And arguably anything in 99 to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Made the harder type of choice there, but yeah. So the worst stuff in 94 for me is not that bad. Yeah. So we've given our awards and our analysis. But there's one more thing we'd like to do here to just have a little bit of fun with this. Our ultimate Spring Stampede cards. So, here's the rules, just as a refresher. Mm -hmm. Each of us designs a Spring Stampede card featuring eight matches drawn from the actual Spring Stampede matches. We can only use each performer as a competitor once. So, someone can show up as a manager or commentator or as interference or some other role on other matches, but you can only use them once as an actual competitor. For instance, if you picked Nash versus Goldberg from Spring Stampede 1999, you couldn't then use any match where either of those was a competitor elsewhere, but you could still use Lex Luger in another match because he's only a manager in that match. Correct. You can use any match in any position. You're not required to pick an actual main event for your main event. All right. All right, you want to go first or you want me to? I go first. Okay. So mine will open with Billy Kidman versus Rey Mysterio from Spring Spain 1999. Even if it's not a great show as mentioned, that match stood out to me and that deserves mention here. I have the exact opposite match book next, which is the match between Vader and the Boss Man. Okay. You had two Cruiserweights showing them they can flip and tell stories and everything. Now here's two big old hosses. 
throw each other around and punch each other and bust each other open. And in one case, accidentally showing how far he could flip and fly. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been torn this because it's purely me having a soft spot for the person and they're part of the match. Sort of accepting the really bad with the good here. I have the Mike Awesome versus Bam and Bigelow slash the cat match. Okay. The only thing salvageable for me other than the Booker T Sting match, but it's looted for other reasons from that show. The actual match you get between Bigelow as the official replacement, unofficial replacement, it's never clear, is quite good and a good teaser for their more lengthy actual one-on-one match at Stark Age 2000, which I actually liked. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't leave my Gotham at the show. And it's that or him versus Scott Steiner, and I like this one better. <laughs> Big of Booker T, I have Booker T versus Chris Benoit from 1998. As mentioned before from my single... Appearance uh, pick, I have Stephen Regal versus Brian Pillman from 1994, Spring Stampede. That was a good one. There's a lot of Regal matches that do the can he survive the time limit thing, and they're all generally really good. This one does the balancing of time without really well. Mm-hmm. Following that, I have a very different match going from technical aggression to just insane aggression. We have the public enemy <laughs> versus the four horsemen. Okay. Which in this case is Jeff Darren and Mongo. As I said before, when we covered the show, it's such a weird combination of things. Because Public Enemy is pure brawling and chaos with their tables. And not too much for terror, really, but a lot of just punching and kicking. You have Mongo, who is all sort of raw power and energy. He definitely is out of place a couple times, at least once. But he's so enthusiastic about yeah, it. You, exactly. you just gotta like it. And you have Jeff Jarrett, who... Like, practically from birth, is trained to be a classical 80s-style pro wrestler, which he never, other than the fact that he started using guitars and low blows, he never really changed. No, yeah. He kept all that sort of structure. It's like if Steamboat had started 10 years later and worked 10 years longer, you kind of get the same idea. He could work a classical match, but then, you know, just pull out a guitar and everything. Don't, don't make me think of Ricky Steamboat saying slap nuts, man. Ricky Steamboat saying, ha-ha, is that better? <laughs> All right, I have two matches to go. In my semi-main event, I have the match we've lauded over greatly, which is DDP versus Randy Savage. Okay. I figure contextually it can be a number one contenders match, okay. given that Savage is so high on the card and is a WO guy, he is a natural fit for that position. This could be saying he DDP's challenging for the WCW and to try and get that position. So that works story-wise. Okay. And... Only match to give me a main event in this series, Ric Flair's Ricky Steamboat, which, as you said many times now, is amazing. Okay. All right. You're going to hear some familiar matches as I go through mine, but not, not all of them. Okay. So I'm pleased with that. Good. My first match is Regal versus Pillman from Spring Stampede 1994. Okay. Started off with a nice, fast-paced, complicated match. Mm-hmm. As with you, go the other way with the next match. Bunkhouse Buck versus Dustin Rhodes, Spring okay. Stampede 1994. Uh-huh. Let's go to beat the tar out of each other next. Yeah. Third match, let's take it back the other way again, but keep high emotion in it with Ultimo Dragon versus Chavo Guerrero Jr., Makes sense. Spring Stampede 1998. Fourth match, get a tag match on the card <laughs> with Benoit Malenko versus Raven and Saturn from Spring Stampede 99. By the way, on Earth 9400, this is for the tag titles and does not end with a supremely dangerous flying headbutt onto a chair. 
Excellent. All right. Fifth match, Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Kidman from Spring Stampede 1999. I think on Earth 9400, Kidman is still in the flock as of this match, so he's solidly a bad guy and Mysterio is solidly a good guy. Gotcha. Sixth match, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat from Spring Stampede 1994. Yes, I am doing the world title match in the midcard. I'm pulling a Russell War 89. <laughs> Flair and the Horsemen will turn full heel after this match when Flair bribes the ref to declare him the winner from the double pin and then has the Horsemen beat down best buddy Ricky Steamboat. Of course. And our seventh match then becomes Lex Luger versus the Giant versus Booker T versus Stevie Ray from Spring Stampede 1997. So this is mainly on there for that amazing character moment from the Giant at the end. Mm -hmm. But on Earth 9400, it's contested more as a straight tag match. And after Flair's antics in the previous match, Commissioner Bockwinkle set this match up to determine the number one contender to uh, face off against Flair. So maybe it started as a normal normal tag match. And that they declared it. Okay. This is for number one contender and Giant selflessly gives it to Luger. Now, does this version of Nick Bockwinkle good at explaining a match? No. Okay. I, I I can't fantasy book things quite Okay, just making yet. sure. Okay, gotcha. And my eighth match is Diamond Dallas Page versus the Macho Man Randy Savage from Spring Stampede 1997. It feels odd to do this since I do have a world title match on my card, but I cannot see putting DDP's first main event anywhere but the main event. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking on Earth 9400, it's just one of those massive feuds that just actually overshadows the world title. Okay. But Really, it's just symbolic here. I I can't make that not a main event when it was his first one. <laughs> you could you could do like have some sort of extra condition to the match, like um, have uh, DDP been fighting the WO for quite a while at this point, and Savage is you know crazy Savage, but also pure than the WO, and he's off DP so much that he's willing to take the match, even though the condition is if he loses, he's first to join the WO. Yeah, so, yeah, there's some massive condition on it that makes it worthy of, that's actually bigger than the world title. He he goads him into this match by threatening, you know, Kimberly or such. There you go. I'm I'm pleased we we had some similarities between our cards, but some some differences as well. I will say, I give it four. My soft bot for Mike Awesome and his really good performance in that, like, three minutes he gets to do it in. (laughs) I've saddened myself that I didn't have a Sting match, but... It was hard to find one that didn't have other people involved. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't take DDP away from his Savage match, so I can't have the world title match there. I didn't really want to take Booker T away from yeah. his Benoit match, so I can't use the 2001. And I just realized I don't have a Sting match either, and that's pretty much the same reason. Like, his good matches were against people that I had to use elsewhere. If I didn't have my feelings towards my Gossam and his good performance, I probably would have... Pivoted in, Sting was Rick Rude 94, which overall was a good match. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to leave Awesome off the card. Yeah. Now the real insanity begins. Yes. Yes, it does. Now that we've given our ultimate Spring Stampede cards, it is time for re-gimmicking. All right. So each of us has been given a match from each other's card, and we have to give that match a new gimmick or stipulation that would turn it into something new. Now, we provided our matches to each other ahead of time, but we haven't heard each other's re-gimmickings, so this will be interesting. (laughs) I hope so. So, Al, do you want to hear the one that you gave me first or the one that I gave you first? You can go yours first. I want to hear yours. Okay. So, for me, Al provided Mike Awesome versus the Cat and or Bam Bam Bigelow Mm -hmm. from Spring Stampede 2000. 
In the ring are Mike Awesome, Bam Bam Bigelow, and a closed, opaque, human-sized steel chamber. Okay. Dave Penzer, in a white lab coat, explains that in the chamber is Mike Awesome's scheduled opponent, Ernest the Cat Miller. And also in the chamber is a Geiger counter, in which is a small amount of radioactive substance, and a separate chamber which contains the cat's match contract and a vial of powerful acid. Okay. If the radioactive substance decays, the vial will break, destroying the cat's match contract so he is not in the match. If the substance does not decay, the vial will not break, so the cat will be in the match. However, as there is no way to determine from outside the box what the condition inside the box is, the cat can be said to both be in the match and not in the match until the chamber is opened and his match contract, or the remains of it, are observed. If the cat is in the match, then Awesome must beat him to win. If the cat is not in the match, Awesome must beat Bigelow. If Awesome pins the wrong person, then Awesome is disqualified, so either Bigelow automatically wins if the cat is not in the match, or Bigelow and Cat will fight if the cat is in the match. Okay. Bigelow, on the other hand, can win by beating Awesome if Awesome is not so disqualified. Uh Cat can win by beating either opponent, but only if Cat is actually in the match. Awesome, thus, must fight off Bigelow for long enough to open the steel chamber, thus establishing, through observation, the current condition of the cat's match contract, and thereby determining which person Awesome must actually pin. Otherwise, he can gamble by pinning Bigelow, but then the chamber will be opened, and if he was wrong, he loses. Bigelow, on the other hand, just tries to beat the crap out of Awesome and pin him. Bigelow is not interested in quantum mechanics. No. (laughs) So, yes, it's a... And I always get the pronunciation of this name wrong, but Schrodinger's uh, Ernest the Cat. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the Schrodinger's Ernest the Cat match. Yes. I, I admit, I'm proud of that one. <laughs> That's good. I like it. <laughs> so for Al, I provided Bunkhouse Buck versus Dustin Rhodes from Spring Stampede 1994. All right. I give you the reverse Bunkhouse match. Okay. Thank you, Vince Russo. Oh, no. <laughs> Rhodes and Buck begin in their bunkhouse slash street fight attire, basically what they wrestled the actual match in officially. Okay. In the ring. They must fight each other in the ring. There's no pinfall. That's not one of those kind of matches. Those stupid rules like pinfall submission or DQ, okay. all that nonsense. No, no. Much easier. You want to subdue the other to go outside the ring where your fancy dress attire is. <laughs> and you got your brush and your comb and everything. Do you want to debilitate your opponent to go outside and get dressed up for the barn dance. Okay. You've worked a long day in the bunkhouse. Now you're going to go to the barn dance to celebrate on a Saturday night. Go out go out and, and have a nice dance with your sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. That, a hoot nanny. That's nice. Yeah. Besides just not going out and getting dressed, you have to stop him from getting dressed first as well. Right. Yeah. Presumably they're both after the same girl and it's a big right, thing. Right. And of course, just to be clear, their outfits are on different sides of the ring. They're not next to each other because that'd right. be stupid. No, they got to go to one side of the ring and either dress fast than the guy or try and take him out and stop him from getting dressed. So probably they're fighting at some point half-dressed in tuxedo, <laughs> half in bunkhouse attire. Now, obviously, your question is, how do you win, officially win a reverse bunkhouse match? Yes, Al, how do you win a reverse bunkhouse match? Okay. Once a uh, referee, and possibly a woman, I haven't decided that part, decides you were ready to go, yeah, like you had enough stuff on, you look good to go, they will let you cross the gate that is covering the front ringside entrance area, whereupon you must ride on your horse, which has been waiting there the whole time for you. Nice. So if you get dressed first, 
run the gate, get in and ride to the back of the arena to enjoy Hootenanny and dance with their gal. Nice. That is a reverse bunkhouse match. Presumably because this is a wrestling show, they go squared circle dancing. Of course. <laughs> yes. I, I got to give you credit for this one, by the way, Al, that you have designed a match that addresses the one actual problem I had with the original match, uh-huh. which is that uh, Bunkhouse Buck got progressively less clothed as the match went there on. There you go. This time he gets progressively more clothed as exactly. the match goes on. To win, he has to. Yes. <laughs> Book this match. Very nice. Thank you. But, once again, we also sent a match each to John. Mm-hmm. Strap in. Oh, boy. Al, you want to hear the one I gave him first or the one you gave him first? Um, do through yours. Okay. So, from me, John received Lex Luger versus the Giant versus Booker T versus Stevie Ray, the Four Corners match, from Spring Stampede 1997. Okay. He calls this a mile in another's boots. Okay. It's a four-way free-for-all. There are four treadmills located at the corners of the ring, and each faces towards the audience. Of course. Booker and Stevie are at opposing corners, the same with Lex and Giant. Naturally. The goal is simple. The match ends when you have one mile on your treadmill. Okay. There are simple boxes hanging above each treadmill from the ceiling that start at zero and finish when they get to one. All right. The gimmick here is everyone can race to one mile, but at any point you could be attacked to stop progress by any other wrestler. In addition, the person that pins another in the center of the ring gets that person's distance added to their own distance. Well, of course. That makes sense. Yeah. To make things interesting, if anyone has over half a mile on their treadmill when any pin happens, it's rounded back down to half a mile. Oh, okay. So as people go over half miles, they become big targets, and the incentive to break pins gets higher. Fun fact, after being attacked a few times, Booker decides to walk backwards on his treadmill, slowly facing the ring, so he doesn't have to keep looking over his shoulder. That makes sense. And Giant just occasionally pushes his belt on his treadmill forward with one foot like it's a skateboard, uh-huh. and then goes and looks for a new pin. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would definitely not go against Luger in a match that involved cardio like that. No, yeah. <laughs> He'd be the biggest target in a match. I like that. All right, and yours? Yeah. All right, from Al, John received Public Enemy versus Jeff Jarrett and Mongo of the Horsemen from Spring Stampede 97. Yeah. All right, you ready, Al? I am. Give it to me. He calls this the War of the Tours. (laughs) Okay. The lights go dim, and there's the sound of a single trumpet playing a lively heroic fanfare that soon morphs into playing over the Public Enemy's intro music. Nice. The entrance to the arena has a red billowing velvet-like curtain. Public Enemy appears with prosthetic horns on their heads and bare-chested, with small half-capes with their logo on their backs. Okay. They have fur-like chaps and hoof-like attachments to their boots. They are the Public Enemy-Minotaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they are. Oh my god. Oh jeez. They go into the ring and pose and lock horns to get the crowd excited. Yeah. There's a whistle and the sound of the wind blowing and a faint guitar playing. Then the sound of a whip crack rings out as the red cape is torn down, and Jared and Mongo gallop down to the ring as two members of the four centaurs men <laughs> of course. with blow-up pony bodies tied around their waist. I was, was going to ask how that worked. Were they riding horses? Okay, good. So we didn't book two matches with people ride horses. No, no, we, we booked one match where someone rides a horse and one match where people become horses. Gotcha. That, I gotcha. Much, much saner. Yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. They corral the minotaurs in the center of the ring and prance around a few times before each team takes to their assigned corners. 
Jarrett's rolling his eyes, but Mongo is really into this. I bet he is. Yeah, yeah he would have fun. I, you know that. Hundred percent. Yeah. It's a free for all before the tag match starts. They toy with each other, and the centaurs end up ripping off the minotaur's horns, but not before they end up popping their ponies. <laughs> That's sense I never thought you'd say. <laughs> happens regularly with John matches. Yes, popping their ponies. That's all I needed to hear, man. The skirt around the ring is removed, and there is a labyrinth of chain-link fences with one entrance and one exit with a gate at each end. Of course. There are a few brightly covered boxes in corners at the end of a few paths. A single lasso is given as a weapon to each team up top. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways to win. Either they have to hogtie both opponents, or they have to lock both of their opponents in the labyrinth. Okay. If there's a labyrinth finish, both of the opposing team have to be up top to win. Additionally, there are keys and a hidden bonus prize in one of the boxes in the labyrinth, so it's worth going through before the end of the match. No DQ for using the lassos. Of course. If an opponent is pinned, they're sent to the labyrinth's entrance, and the door is locked behind. There are cameras located below, so the audience can see the wrestlers battle it out if two get sent into the maze. About three-quarters of the way through the match, Jarrett's up top by himself, but both Minotaurs and Mongo are in the cage, and he's just shrugging, laughing, and watching Mongo get beat up. Mm -hmm. A few minutes later, both Public and Minotaurs, that's really hard to say, by the way, (laughs) emerge and chase him down, making him look really concerned. Oh, and the secret prize that they can fight for? Uh Uh-huh. A 1998 Ford Taurus. Of course it is. The locks on the exit are color-coded, but not visible until you get through the maze to the exit. Each of the boxes match the color of the locks. Ah. There's four sets of car keys in the six silver boxes. Two are empty. Only one set of car keys will actually start the car, but in WCW fashion, the fake keys are really easily determined to be blanks. Yes. Wow. But I have a surprise for you, Al. Okay. Before we finish up here, when we were picking matches for rebooking, you first sent me the Suicide 6 match, uh-huh. but then realized that was against the rules because you weren't picking it for your ultimate card. Correct. I've rebooked it anyway. Okay, good. I can't promise brilliance, but here goes. Okay. The Suicide 6 match has become the Suicide 6 Dimension match. Okay. With WCW unable to do something as basic as define the competitors in a match, the barriers between dimensions have broken down. So, we have not just 11 people, but multiple different versions of the various people from dimensions across the thus far undiscovered WCW multiverse. Okay. And a chaotic cruiserweight mess. Amongst the notables, mm-hmm. Juventud Guerrero of Earth 982, where he did not, in fact, lose his match to Chris Jericho, but still has his sweet hat. All right. Lash Ledoux of Earth 616, where he's a superhero that can split in two. But Tony still can't tell you what either signature move is called. <laughs> of course. Prince Iakea of Earth 9799, where he never gave up his original gimmick to don a puffy shirt, and would go on to have the match of the night at Slambury 2000, not that it saved that show. No. Christoph Emmanuel Cantito of Earth 1784, who opened a portal to this dimension by simply arguing that whether another dimension existed or not, it was in his interest in believing that one did, that he might win the cruiserweight title there. Sure. La Pageka of Earth 974, where Diamond Dallas Page disguised himself as La Parka to fight Randy Savage and liked the look so much he adopted it permanently, becoming La Parka's only long-lasting and successful tag partner. Nice. La Pageka replaces actual Earth 974 participant Crowbar the Golden, who was the actual gold crowbar that that Dimensions David Flair once used against La Pageka. I knew it. I knew that was coming. 
Crowbar the Golden had to withdraw from the dimensional travel after suffering a sudden unfortunate case of diamond cutter. Ah. The Nature Boy, David Flair, of Earth 7299, where his serious father, Rick Flair, stuck with an amateur wrestling career and never went pro, but his incredibly charismatic son joined WCW in its later days and revitalized the flagging company as a wildly successful long-running heel champion. Oh, nice. Hurricane Helms, from our own dimension, just accidentally sent back in time by Shannon Moore, otherwise known as Moore Easter, mm-hmm. of Earth Zero, where he was the sidekick to that universe's actual superhero, Hurricane Helms, and tried to use Dark Lord Russo's technology to revive his departed mentor to face a new threat, only to accidentally send both he and the alternate universe pro wrestler version of his mentor here instead. Oh, and Spider-Man, because he always gets wrapped up in these sorts of things. Yeah. This exceptionally terrible match was won by, of all people, David Arquette of Earth 2021, where he was a very successful, world-famous pro wrestler. WCW proceeded to have our universe's David Arquette accidentally win the Cruiserweight title off of him en route to the world title. The company closed its doors three months earlier than the original history. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that just popped into my head. I'm like, nope, I gotta rebook this thing. <laughs> All right. Here, I, I can give you a, uh, my own quicker gimmick of that. You sure, just fired me. So, it's a Suicide Squad 6 match. There you go. That's a good one, too. They all have the little embedded thing from the brain. And all 11 people come up for the match. Russo in the back donates the bombs and everyone but who's actually in the match, their heads explode. They get better. They'll get better. It's okay. <laughs> and, I don't know, maybe uh, someone else you don't like in there. I don't know, Blasheroo? They get into five, maybe? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know who you really want to excise that's actually in the, officially in the match. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe the artist we known as uh, Prince Iakea. Yeah, yeah, I like him earlier than the artist phase, but not so much then. He'll be the, uh, what's the guy, the Ripcord, I think his guy's name was? The not Rip, the one in the Suicide Squad movie, they blow up to show that the things work. Oh, uh, yeah. He's not important, that's all that matters. <laughs> but yeah, I just I'll walk out and just, I his head just start blowing up. You guys are in the match. Okay, at least it would clarify things. Yeah. That's all I ask. To make it better, I'll give you one extra thing. As a clerical error... They actually blew up Shane and Moore's head, so Shane Helms is there instead. Okay. Yep. Improved. There you go. And that wraps up our coverage of Spring Stampede. So, what have we got coming up next? Yeah. Well, first up, our bridge show. For the first time, we're going to take a full look at an episode of WCW Monday Nitro. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the episode for July 29th, 1996. Some really notable stuff happens on this show. Up-and-coming tag team High Voltage faces the Steiners. Yeah. The Giant defends his world title against a very unexpected opponent. Uh Uh-huh. Jim Duggan faces Mike Enos. Ooh. That's definitely all the major stuff, right? I'm sure nothing else of note happens. I guess why I picked it, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And now, our next series. Mm Mm-hmm. destroy the colossal giant. Sting and the total package have a common goal to demolish the outsider invasion. Plus, we're going to take you places you've never been before. It's WCW's Hog Wild. Saturday, August 10th, live and only on pay-per-view. Next up is Hog Wild and Road Wild. Running from 1996 through 1999, this covers four shows 
all set during the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota. Other than lots and lots and lots of bikers, what can we expect? We get Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Ultimo Dragon. All right. Hulk Hogan versus Lex Luger. Mm hmm. Ric Flair versus Six. Yeah. Goldberg versus most of the NWO in a battle royale. Oh, right. Yeah. Randy Savage versus Dennis Rodman. Oh, yeah. Hogan and Bischoff versus DDP and Jake Leno. Jay Leno, yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, at the very least, it'll be interesting. Yes. So again, our upcoming releases are... In June, WCW Monday Nitro from July 29th, 1996. And in July, the start of our new series with Hog Wild 1996. So join us as we move from horses to steel horses to continue our ride through WCW history. I assume we're wanted dead or alive? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, good. Just checking. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. So, top three Slamborees in terms of pay-per-view buys. Al, what do you think number one is? It's Slamboree. I did say Slamborees. That's because <laughs> I forgot to update my notes. Okay. <laughs> I, I was so careful on that, and I see now on twice on this page, I've managed to screw that up. As long as the numbers are correct, it'll be, you can work around. Yes, that, that, I, that I... Okay, I, good, good. Yes. The top three Slamborees in terms of attendance. So, what do you think number one is? And I said Slamborees again, didn't I? Good <laughs> God. good. Okay. 1997 is a really good show because it has strong performances. It has a lot of matches that will be on my ultimate slam. You keep saying slam. My ultimate no, yeah. You and me both. <laughs> I know. It's the S's and this goes together. Big of Booker T. I have Booker T versus Chris Benoit from 1998 Starcade. Okay. Oh, see. 1998 Spring Stampede, that is. <laughs> Make some different shows now.